I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The year is 1993. You're Paramount Studios. You've just relaunched the most iconic science fiction franchise in television history. After four years of toil, Star Trek The Next Generation is now the most popular thing on syndicated television, behind Jeopardy! and Wheel of Fortune. And occasionally, you even beat out Cheers and Monday Night Football. Everything is going gangbusters. Now that the TV audience, young and old, is hooked on the new Enterprise, where do you go next? Obviously, you park your new show on an alien space station near an obscure planet in a remote corner of the Alpha Quadrant with a cast of mostly non-Starfleet aliens and, oh, toss in Chief O'Brien. You may wonder, what the hell were they thinking? That sounds like a recipe for disaster. Counterintuitively, what we ended up with was Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the third TV series in the franchise that was darker, stranger, and more alien than previous iterations. The series was not told from the perspective of fly-by-night busybodies arriving, meddling, and then departing in a single episode, but with interconnected stories wherein the Federation is a reluctant peacekeeping force anchored in a stationary vessel and compelled by its highest ideals to stay and help shepherd the reconstruction of a non-Federation world. This was Star Trek Terra Incognita. The series follows Commander Benjamin Sisko, a widower and single father assigned to space station Deep Space Nine to help the recently liberated Bajorans rebuild after a generations-long Cardassian occupation. The station becomes geopolitically critical for Starfleet after a wormhole is discovered, which allows starships to travel to the far-flung Gamma Quadrant. And if that wasn't enough, Sisko and crew find that a race of non-corporeal aliens living within the wormhole select him to be their emissary to the Bajoran people, a religious prophet and a role that chafes Sisko's professional and personal sensibilities. Nevertheless, Sisko must balance that role with preserving a precarious peace on Bajor, regulating trade from the Gamma Quadrant, and later defending the Alpha Quadrant from invasion. Sisko is joined by an ensemble cast of Starfleet officers, Jadzia Dax, Julian Bashir, and Enterprise D. Emma Gray, Miles Edward O'Brien. But rounding out the cast is a colorful menagerie of aliens, Major Kira Norris, a Bajoran officer, Odo, a shape-shifting security officer, and Quark, a Ferengi bartender and ne'er-do-well. And later, the series would add Commander Worf, fresh off TNG, and Garrick, the Cardassian spy turned Taylor. This diversity in cast is one of the series' defining features, and in keeping with the franchise's central op- ideology. DS9 is a depiction of a pluralistic community, one that it flourishes, is made stronger, more robust, and more just by its non-Starfleet, non-human comrades. DS9 was such a dramatic left turn for the franchise, throwing Trek into even riskier territory total war. When Sisko and company are thrust onto the front lines in the Dominion's war on the Alpha Quadrant, we start to see Starfleet's true colors. The Federation struggles with its own ability to stay righteous in the face of destruction, while straining its core laws and mores and jeopardizing every alliance the Federation has. 
When I moderated the Radio vs. the Martians panel on Next Generation, I said that the series dared us to be better, smarter people. Deep Space Nine does that too, but it also shows us how to hold on to those virtues in the face of conflicting moral choices, life or death scenarios, and precarious situations where sometimes there is no high road to be taken. At the time of its original run, DS9 was maligned as many of its fans found the show's concept and tone to be too unlike TNG and TOS to suit their tastes. DS9 may have been too far ahead of its time for 1990s TV audiences. And now, like Fine Wine, it may have finally aged enough for its audience to appreciate its strengths and subtleties. And taking the series in its totality, 176 episodes, it is an impressive achievement, one that I argue no other Star Trek series since has been able to match. And with that, let's release the docking clamps, take a spin off the Dabo table, and a journey through the wormhole. We're talking Star Trek Deep Space Nine on this panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Let's meet the panel. First up, making his Radio vs. the Martians debut, Siskoid, the author of Siskoid's blog of geekery, as well as a number of podcasts on the Fire and Water Network, including Gimme That Star Trek, FW Team Up, and the new Zero Hour Strikes podcast. Welcome, Siskoid. Hi, Casey. Uh, and another first-time panelist, uh, ma- man whose name is actually on the plaque in our studio, Mike Warbington, camp director for Camp Quest Northwest and occasional guest host of the Ask an Atheist radio program. Welcome, Mike Warbington. Thank you, Casey. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, O'Brien to my Bashir, Quark to my Odo, Reddish Paw Wraith to my Whitish Paw Wraith, <laughs> Mike Gillis. Uh, good to be here. I just got to say, this is the first time that there have been four mics on this show really four mics uh, three mics there are four mics <laughs> okay <laughs> they're all i'm oh, sorry so i'll call mike warbington warb and ciscoid as well um so i wanted to start off specifically with you mr warbington warb yes, sir um DS9 wasn't very well received in its original run being sort of sandwiched between tng and voyager um not really exploring the universe, but being more of a soap opera. Sometimes it's derisively sort of referred to as the middle child of the series. I want you, like, what was this animus towards the series at the time? Um, and do you think now it's transcended that initial impression that it had? I I think it got a, a bad impression at the time from people who looked at it and they didn't see a cool Federation starship like you saw uh, in the Enterprise on the two previous iterations of the show. You didn't have a super charismatic captain with this crew of the best of the best in the galaxy. It wasn't the Federation flagship. It wasn't it wasn't the jocks running the starship. It was the it was the geeks. And that was (laughs) right. That was a that was a it was the geeks on on a space station. It was a time in pop culture where the geeks weren't running everything. Ah, yes. The nerds weren't in charge of everything. So it was kind of a, a weird, a, a weird, weird time to introduce a, uh, that sort of a concept. It was sort of ahead of its time a, a little bit in that way. So it struggled to find an audience, I think. Um, but it ran its full seven seasons. Sure. I mean, it didn't. It didn't die the ignominious death of something like Enterprise, right? Where, no. Where no. it just like could not generate enough interest to keep going. That was the fertile, the fertile period, right? So you're able to pull seven whole seasons out of it. It may have been the only time you could have pulled off Deep Space Nine because, I mean, Star Trek was at an all-time high. You were coming – you had the wind at your back with The Next Generation and you still had uh, – the original series movies were still coming out or had just finished off. So there's a lot of good will happening there with Star Trek. And there's also this opening that we 
actually, yeah, two years after we saw The Undiscovered Country. So we had room in our hearts for another Starfleet crew. For a political thriller based on Starfleet? Yeah, and I think that we had already seen a lot of stories with Starfleet captains and their gallant crews traveling around, getting into adventures, solving political crises and diplomatic problems, and going from place to place. And this was an adventure where... The action came to you, that you were the stationary person at the crux of the galaxy. I mean, whether it was trade or war or exploration, that you were now the most important place in the galaxy. And Cisco, when he got the job, was not thinking that was going to be his gig. This was probably going to be his last job in Starfleet before retiring back to Earth. Right, And... It was like he's, a, the, he's the Murtaugh of Starfleet. I mean, it was a, two weeks away from retirement. It was like a thankless humanitarian effort that no one else really wanted because it was messy and ugly. There was a lot of stuff with the, with Bajor that had been completely destroyed and strip mined by the Cardassians. They were not happy. They were not happy that the Federation was there, but right. they needed them nonetheless. And there was a real sense of I'm going to hate this job. I can't wait to pass it off to somebody in maybe two years. But then the wormhole shows up and changes everything. I mean, right. both for Cisco with the, the prophets and also with the Dominion coming into the story, the wormhole also brings the Cardassians sniffing around again or thinking maybe they ditched this place a little fast. Right. <laughs> so it's sort of the idea of a thankless, dead-end job becoming the most important job in all of Starfleet. Right. And Siskoid, since uh, the, your namesake is essentially this character, um, I mean, Benjamin Sisko is obviously the, uh, the, the, maybe he, he may not be the most important character, but it's an ensemble. So he's definitely one of the most important characters for making DS9 its own flavor. Um, risky making a African-American man as a captain, which there are obviously elements of people that probably would not watch it just for that reason. Um, like. Cisco is a different kind of captain, right? I mean, he's a different kind of officer, and I want to, uh, Cisco, I want your sort of take on, do you think that was a successful experiment? Because it was obviously a radical departure from the captains of old. Well, to me, well, he wasn't a captain at first, right? right. They, they sort of uh, prevented him from being the captain until a couple seasons in. I don't even remember that animus. Well, I remember it. I mean, I think you're overstating it uh, in the sense that TNG got the same animus at first. It's not like the original series. And the first <laughs> couple seasons kind of sucked for the most part, you know, oh, until Riker yeah. gets that beard. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's tougher. I mean, there are a lot more awkward episodes and it's true of Deep Space Nine as well. Although Deep Space Nine, you know, starts running pretty fast at the very end of the first season, but there are some clunky episodes there where where they're trying to find their voice. Right. Right. It's the same thing. The only reason we remember more animus for Deep Space Nine is because of, of those damn Babylon five fans. (laughs) Uh, You know, you could only love one. You could only like one because they, they were so similar in, in some ways, Mm -hmm. Uh, although completely dissimilar in the way they were constructed. One was a five-year plan or, you know, one was drawn out from the beginning. The other one, they're flying by the seat of their pants. It's an improvisation, which, uh, you know, uh, made me follow Ron Moore to other shows, including Battlestar Galactica, which is a total improvisation right. uh, in the right. in the same sense as DC Science. So um, as to Cisco himself, 
Uh, here we have a, I mean, he's, they have to make him different from Kirk and uh, Picard just to make him, you know, just to be different. So it's not just that he's an African-American, although they did use that from time to time in the series, even though we're supposed to be in a post-racist world. Um, they still found ways to, to, to bring it up, either in the, the heist episode where he refuses to go to the, you know, he doesn't like the whole Las Vegas, 50s Las Vegas, 60s Las Vegas scenario right. uh, in the hollow suites uh and of course the episode where i i guess you're going to call this like prophet visions where he reimagines himself or you know is it the dreamer dreaming the dream and all of that stuff where he's a science fiction writer benny the writer in that, yeah. yeah yeah in that era so um so they, they do bring this up and i think you know avery brooks gets to gets to play that and relate it to the star trek universe to the utopia but Really, I mean, if we're buying into Star Trek, then we are in a post-racist world. We're in a post-sexist world. We're in a post, uh, you know, we're in that utopia. I completely buy it. I, you know, I was raised on Star Trek and comics, so I do not have these prejudices as a consumer of of, of media because I was taught well by these, hmm. you know, by by these forms of media by Star Trek itself. So. To me, it's not bizarre. It's about time kind of stuff. And we've seen black captains on TNG by right, this time. Of course. You know? Of course. Yeah. Uh, so, so it doesn't seem strange to me. What was strange and was perhaps difficult to accept for people was that he was not a captain. And right. in fact, in the in the pilot, he tells the captain that we love <laughs> <laughs> to, to fuck to himself. Off. Yes. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> He's right to do it, you know, from his perspective. He's right. talking to Locutus, <laughs> who killed his wife uh, and many others. So uh, I, we get it. But it's also the show begins with, look, Picard, I don't care how beloved your show is. Get the fuck off my station. <laughs> the balls so, of that. The right. Balls. And, and, and it's amazing. I mean, in that pilot, you know, the pilot has a lot of awkwardness that's going to, you know, uh, propel the first season between the characters. They don't love each other right away. They're not, you know, the the the, the, the two separate crews, so to speak, don't like each other. So uh, it's tough for people to get into it, but Deep Space Nine was playing a longer game. And when we look at it afterwards, when we are able to, to, to binge it, and there's no one that I've introduced Deep Space Nine to, you know, post when, once it was done, that hasn't fallen in love with it. So yeah. it's really a question of look at what they're building. And I think today we get TV like this a lot more where they're building towards something, a longer, a longer story arc. And so the characters that hated each other became fast friends by the end. Hmm. And uh, Mike, I wanted to. That's great. Thank you, Siskoid. Um, I wanted to get Mike to to have his initial question first, which is um, one of the many ways that DS9 has a difference with other other iterations is that it's set on an alien space station. Mm-hmm. We're not on a ship anymore. I, just describe, I love uh, Mike's ability to describe things. Describe someone what the look and feel of DS9 is in relation to it being a different place. Well, that was the thing that I liked the most about it is it would have been very easy for this show to save a lot of money by just making a Federation space station, that they had the model of what a Federation space station looks like from TNG. You have the hallways and the interiors and the sort of grid-like pattern of Starfleet technology that you've been building for four years at this point, and you have a lot of props that they use and reuse. Deep Space Nine is not a Federation station. It was built by the Cardassians. So... 
Even in episodes where the Cardassians don't appear, the ghost of the Cardassians is there. It wasn't built to be the sort of station that it's used as by Cisco and crew. Mm-hmm. It was an it was like a gas and ore refinery, mostly populated by Bajoran slaves who were basically worked to death. And even though the bottom half of the station sort of comprises this sort of like industrial area, the promenade, which is the main part of the station you see throughout the series, is an open area. There are shops, there are restaurants, like Quark has a bar and casino there. There's a Klingon restaurant, there's a replimat that people go to eat at. Uh, you can go get a Jumja stick or, you know, some Hasparat. Um, there's a Bajoran temple. And the difference between this and, say, the Enterprise is that on the Enterprise, Captain Picard or Captain Kirk have almost total control of who comes on board and when they can throw them off. Right, right. Cisco doesn't really have that because this is a public space that hundreds of civilians live in. Shop owners, uh, residents, traders, people like Morn, who owns a shipping company. They live there in quarters that are in the habitat ring and come and go. So when somebody comes on board, even if it's like a garrison of Cardassians who want their ship to be fixed, you can't throw them out without good reason. You have to have more than just suspicion. And you have a security chief that thinks more like a cop than like a Starfleet officer with Odo. So you have a lot more to corral, a lot more that you don't control. And even the visibility of this place, the the sets are incredible because you have these multi-level catwalks and bridges and spiral staircases and working elevators and everything is sort of angular. I, I, I hesitate to say it's like Art Deco, but it's very – it's about sort of curves and sharp lines. It's not the soft corners that you get a Federation technology with that sort of soft carp- carpeted gray. Um, the panels are not in a grid pattern. It's kind of like when you get one of those ergonomic keyboards that bend in weird directions because your hands are not really <laughs> built to work in sort of a speak and spell grid. Sure. Um, they kind of go into swirls and circles and they sort of go off in these branching patterns. So the technology you see them using, with the exception of the runabouts, which are kind of the midpoint between like a shuttlecraft and a starship, um, that's the lone piece of technology. Those runabouts are the lone piece of technology from the Federation that you largely see on the mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. And because the they're trying to patch together something from a different alien species – Not everything works as well as it does on a Federation starship because you have a lot of patches and go-betweens. So it's this living, breathing thing. It's them trying to turn a machine of death into a place of life and community. And Cisco's job is a lot more complicated than Picard's is. Right. Picard could always throw off somebody who's a troublemaker or confine them to quarters Cisco needs better reason, and sometimes he has to stand back and let a sketchy person walk around the promenade because he doesn't have good enough authority to throw them out. Because yeah, he, he doesn't have final authority. Exactly. Yeah. He's there on on the, the pleasure of the Bajoran government. So even half the crew he deals with is something like the station. It's a hodgepodge of people working together, not always towards a common goal, but... With the same kind of goals all people have, which is to survive and live and and to coexist with other people safely and freely. Mm-hmm. I I just want to move on. Anyone, this is for anyone. I mean, if you ask most Trek fans, they're likely to mention sort of two memes when you are describing simply DS Nine. One would be dark. 
I suppose, would be a, would be a thing. And the other would be long. And I think there's probably been – that's all that that's been talked to death, I think. But I think the third meme that you could place on DS9 and have it be a truism is flushed out. Um, unlike a sort of a TOS or a TNG where – the writers are moving from episode to episode, basically being like, okay, what's this crazy idea we have here? Okay, that's sort of in there. Okay, they leave. Um, there was a sense that these characters were growing very organically with the with the breadth of the story they were trying to tell. And in, sure, in the way that characters are fleshed out by the time you reach TNG Season 7, because you've had a few Troy episodes. Cool. This is a different idea, right? The idea of this was to really explore these characters living together over a, a single, basically a single shared story that moves there. And um, I, I mean, is it a fleshed out universe or is that just a trick of its serialized nature? I can't tell. I, I think it definitely is more fleshed out. I think the difference is that on an, on a show like, on a show like uh, the next generation, um, the Picard that we have at the end of the series is largely the Picard that we started with. And same goes for the the Riker and the Troy that we started with, or the same Riker and Troy that we end up with. Whereas on, on Deep Space Nine, every one of those characters grows and changes in some way. They develop relationships with one another that are just, you know, they're different at the midpoint of the series than they were at the beginning, and they've changed again by the end of the series. And you can say that for lots of different pairs of characters, lots of, you know, the whole group dynamic, cha- you know, shifts over the course of the series. And um, we're we're introduced to people that we would never think would be, you know, we think are definitely one thing, and then there's they're something completely different by the end of the series. Right. And um, that's where I think the show is the strongest, is in how it develops those characters. Characters and cultures. Yes. You know, it's it's, it's not just the, the, the leads or even their, because they have a, like a, a wide supporting cast as well, but cultures, we're watching, I mean, with all the, you know, when we got into this, we thought, oh, what are the species, you know, the cultures that we know well? The Klingons, the Romulans. But it's, there, it's nothing compared to how much Cardassian content, Bajoran content, Dominion content, Ferengi content that we got within the, the Deep Space Nine series. So we're exploring all these cultures because we're not moving away. They're here. We're here. And they're part of this ecology, let's say, uh, you know, they're part of this environment. So we're exploring these cultures a whole lot more than any before, even though we might think we know a lot about Klingons, a lot of that stuff, you know, like the language was created by fans <laughs> and poured it into the, the franchise. But here we're really living the, the creation of these cultures. Yeah, there really is a sense of branching out from a central metaphor version of an alien species that you saw throughout all of Star Trek that all Klingons tend to be warriors. They tend to be sort of loud and boisterous and like to fight. And all Vulcans tend to be sort of reserved and logical and calm. All Romulans tend to be scheming. And what I really think we we found with this is that we broadened it. We broadened it in a lot of ways, particularly because we have so many recurring characters which is something we don't typically get on something like Next Generation because just by the premise of the show, Captain Picard or even Captain Kirk before him, they're travelers. They're going from one place to another. So you're not in the vast expanse of space going to run into people that often. But think about how many times Gul Dukat shows up on right. Deep Space Nine. Right. 
on if he was a next generation character, he probably would have appeared four or five times at the absolute most, like Tomalock did. But the beauty of having Cisco be in one place and have it to be the one place that the Cardassians are obsessed with. So of course they're going to keep bumping in and going, oh, hey, we're your neighbors. If you ever need help, we're right here. Knowing that the whole time they've always wanted to re-seize Bajor now that it has something valuable on it again, which well, is the wormhole. And, and that, and there's this, we should just start talking about Goldicott because that whole, the central idea of the thing that drives him is that he never got the respect he was owed, that he never got to have everyone see him, that he was the great hero that he thought he was. And that's why he keeps coming back because he's always like, is there a chance that I can like reclaim this fuck up of mine? He's essentially a space Nazi. <laughs> well, that, yeah. That he yeah. was the overseer and uh, administrator of Terok Nor, aka Deep Space Nine, during the Bajoran occupation, and well, and he's had to run home with his tail between his legs, essentially, and that's the biggest humiliation he's ever had to suffer in his life, right? But the fact that he thinks that he can walk back and make right. friends with these people, <laughs> yeah. it's it's part of it is almost delusion, and part of it is almost this kind of gaslighting that he's always doing, where he thinks what. I didn't take all of this personally. I was doing my duty as a Cardassia. I was doing everything for the gl- greater glory of Cardassia. And if I can move past this, surely you can too. <laughs> and you just, you're so exasperated with this. And what I love about Marco Lamo in this role, one, he has a spectacular voice for this character that is so arrogant and so smug <laughs> that. <laughs> Occasionally, there's this like charm that kind of worms its way into it, and these little moments where he feels vulnerable or he feels like a person, and maybe you think you're finding something underneath the monster. And there's something as a consumer of fiction that is fascinating about this. We all want to believe that all villains are wounded puppies to some degree. And then he does what he always does, is he proves what a piece of shit he really is. <laughs> and he does it every time that he is a snake. And it doesn't matter who he sort of attaches himself to, who he tries to pull sympathy from, he will inevitably turn on them. And he inevitably turns on the Dominion. If he had lasted longer, he would have tried to turn on the Paw Wraiths. It's just (laughs) what he does. He's ambitious and slimy and a monster. Scorpions be scorpions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're they're not yeah, uh, they are definitely lizard-like, I suppose. The they're, car- they're definitely scaly. Yeah. <laughs> they look like they should be stunning themselves on rocks is what they look like. I do love the design. They do that. They do, yeah. Oh, really do they? Yeah, we yeah, they do. <laughs> they prefer like much warmer environments. I, I yeah. knew that, but I didn't yeah, know there, that, 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 that if it was Cardassian a, nude sunbathing, I was thinking. Yeah, there's a date between uh, Garrick and Torziao. Uh, that's like on warming rocks or something. Nice. I seem to remember. Yeah. <laughs> but they aren't full on reptilian. They're still mammals, right? Well, their behavior, they, I mean, they ha- they have breasts, so I guess they're mammals or whatever. They but have hair. But I think they're kind of deliberately this metaphor for like reptilian hindbrain kind of, th- kind of thinking, right? Yeah, and they have scales on their necks. And, and Marco Lamo has a neck that was born to be turned into a Cardassian. He has a very long, skinny neck, and you see it in the episodes where he's disguised himself surgically as a Bajoran. Um, yeah, he's got that like, perfect skull shape. It's almost like that entire species was designed based on his profile. <laughs> well, I think it was. He played a different Cardassian on TNG. Yeah, That's he, correct. He was the first Cardassian. The only one with a beard, too. Yeah, um, I, I love Gul Dukat because... 
you're always trying to figure out what he's up to. Uh, there is a certain charisma in him, and I imagine if you are a Cardassian, he cuts a real heroic figure. He wears that armor better than anybody on that show. That sort of like I, I know that you described it this way, Siskoid, when I was on on your podcast. There's an almost Egyptian quality to Cardassian armor. Yeah, I mean, there's like shapes like the Ankh or the like a scarab. Uh, you know, shapes in the in the armor. So, yeah. And I mean, the Ankh shape seems to be like their ships look to be that kind of shape. So I think Egypt or, you know, Egyptology was probably some sort of um, uh, inspiration. I see a lot of conquistador in it, too, with the sort of mm-hmm, big yeah. angular breastplate. Hmm. And it's sort of a very V-shape that they want to try to craft with the look of your torso to sort of look like you're large chested. Well, I mean, and I think to your point, what you're saying before about uh, about the idea of a show that will take not just a story of one alien race in four different episodes or whatever. I you contrast the qualities of a Cardassian like Goldukat, and you contrast them with Garrick, which is basically, I guess, the on the polar opposite side of Dukat. I'm not quite sure how how it works if there's any such thing as poles. But I mean, he's also devious. Oh, he's yeah. also not to be trusted. But he is he is also not like a hideous sociopathic monster. Apparently, not on the surface. <laughs> well, he doesn't. He he utterly lacks the complete egotist egotism of of, of Dukat. Right. He's, he's would much rather you thought of him as plain simple Garrick a Taylor, and he would, can accomplish his goals much much more easily by. Uh, being underhanded about them. Of course. He's not the peacock that Dukat is. No. Well, I mean, he's a guy who who came up through the Obsidian Order, which was basically like the CIA of the Cardassians, right? As opposed to Dukat, which I assume came up through the military, right? He's, 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 a, he's a soldier, mm-hmm. essentially. And uh, Garrick, he... Um, I, I actually think that part of his character must be related to... Um, oh, shoot. Who is the author of the George Smiley... Uh, Le Yeah, John Le Carre, because, yeah. because of the Taylor thing. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. And I always thought like, oh, he must be a- an addition by the writers of that sort of Cold War-esque spy figure who is, you know, was in East Berlin somewhere doing this menial job, but they really have their eye on the building across the street. Like that's totally. the, that's the, the Le Carre character is how I think of Garrett. Well, he's not a James Bond spy. He's the no, guy who no. probably waits for a very long time and is incredibly patient before he actually poisons somebody. He's not the guy who gets involved in a big action sequence. If he shoots somebody, it's in an alleyway in the back. <laughs> and he does and unlike Ducat, he doesn't want to get credit for the things he does. He only cares if his superiors know. And even then, sometimes his superior is the one that he's shooting in the back in an alleyway. Well, it's, it's funny because there is that commonality between him and Ducat where they're both really feeling like they have something to prove. And Garrick's thing to prove is that he is worthy enough to go back, to be reinvited back. Yeah, to, he's a burn spy. Yeah. Yeah, he's been exiled and he's living on a station surrounded by the people that his people had oppressed and enslaved and murdered. But there's nowhere else he can go. You sort of get the impression if he tried to leave the station that he would probably die. He'd die within a week. <laughs> Somebody would yeah. kill him somewhere. Well, Garrick is a willing agent of the state, but Ducat wants to be the state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, is essentially the, you know, the, the difference here. Yeah, there's, there's a difference of ambition. That, that du- mm-hmm. And again, it gets to that, that thing with Ducat that, again, the scorpions will be scorpions, is that he always sees his bosses as something he has to put up with 
dot, 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 for now. <laughs> and that he's going to be that boss in a year or two. And soon there's going to be a statue built to him somewhere. It's like, okay, I'll work for the Dominion, dot, 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 for now. I'll work for the Pa Wraiths, and I, I will guarantee you, dot, 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 for now. Um, <laughs> it's like, I got some wizard powers. There's a certain point where I think I'm better at this than you are, and I'm going to try to kill these these godlike beings. Um, he just has this un, completely unleashed sense of, of arrogance, uh, of entitlement, and of a thirst for power that yeah. that I think he thinks is arrogant sort of justifies. Oh, man, I'm thinking of the words thirst for power and arrogant, and I'm thinking of another character that is a noteworthy villain from Deep Space Nine. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? Oh, I think I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. I win. <laughs> yes, the most the the most hated nurse ever to make way from a mental institution in Oregon up to a space station. I've yeah, got- well on on my show, she won the spoiler for people who haven't listened to it, but I guess she won the, the bracket fight for the villains. <laughs> so we we put sixty four Star Trek villains up against one another from every you know iteration of the show, and. To everyone's surprise, you know, was it's going to be Khan? No, no, <laughs> Kai wins. Kai win won it. And I remember the the thing that the panelists on your show kept saying over and over and over again is that she just makes me so angry. <laughs> Which is a testament yeah, no, she's to totally her. Slimy. She is a you testament to her performance, right? Oh, Louise Fetcher is. If, if you're an actor who does your job poorly, then it doesn't ma- rile up people's heckles as much as she does. And yes, when and when she's on screen, you want someone, someone to to take her out, to find a way to uh, oust her. She's she's a very relatable character, you know. In this day and age, I think is the the politician you want to be ousted, I suppose. Um, but she's protected by this. This air, this uh, sort of religious blessing, because she's like the highest religious. She's not the highest political official, right? She's she, close. She's like the highest religious official. She's the equivalent of the Bajoran Pope. Right. She starts out as a, a, a Vedic, which is sort of a sort of a mid range, like a bishop, and she's a member of kind of a fundamentalist uh, break off group that is much more traditionalist. It just doesn't start out with yeah, it doesn't yep. start out with a lot of power. She's very literalist. And the first episode you see her in is because Keiko O'Brien has just opened a schoolhouse on oh, the yeah. station. Jake Sisko is one of the students, Nog, it's uh, Quark's nephew is one of the students, and most of the other children are Bajoran. And she's teaching them a sec giving them a secular education about the wormhole. And Kai Wynn shows up and is not happy about that. And she's the pearl clutching Phyllis Schlafly of this universe. But she's right? not exactly like Phyllis Schlafly. No. Phyllis Schlafly lets you hate her in public <laughs> because she doesn't know how to not be a jerk. Kai Wynn or Vedic Wynn at this point, she she kind of cages everything in this calm, very reasonable child. I understand that you're upset by this. It's sort of gaslighting that. If you get angry at her in public for doing the things you know she's doing but can't prove she's doing, you are going to look like a monster. (laughs) And she knows it. And she's constantly twisting the knife in the sweetest way possible. She orchestrates a bombing of the schoolhouse and you think, oh, this is what her end goal is. No, her end goal is to lure her moderate rival in the Vedic Assembly to the station so that he can do one of those calls for unity type prayer meetings. So that she can try to have him assassinated. <laughs> she is an awful fucking person. 
<laughs> All the while, she lets someone else take take get busted for it, and she comes away with completely clean looking hands. And she's like, "Oh, this violence! I am, you know, we, you know, this is terrible." <laughs> and you keep waiting for the moment where she gets revealed to all of Bajor for what she is, and it never, never happens. happens. Yes. It's yep. maddening. She's the villain that like doesn't always accomplish her goals, but she always gets away with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think Ducat is too proud to not to you know, to not get away with it. I mean he or to get away with it. He has you know <laughs> we always know when he's the betrayer. Everybody knows. Yeah. Everybody he, knows because he can't you know, he's got yeah. So, uh, the, the, the Kaiwen being an element of this, I mean, we haven't really scratched the surface at all. I mean, we have talked a lot about Cardassians because they really are, they are the villains of the totality of the series, even though they're joined by the Dominion later on. But I mean, the story is about the Starfleet's relationship to the Bajorans. And the Bajorans are this refugee people who've experienced, you know, uh, generations long occupation and... The, the station is sort of their way to get to become that's that level of spacefaring civilization that it's can their kind of yeah, first step to right. being a member of the larger you know federation larger galaxy of people but the 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 interesting thing about it is that they automatically are are kind of at ideological differences with federation the federation at a certain point most especially just culturally like their religion versus starfleet's sort of like implicit secularism and um like the fact that Bajor is highly factionalized versus the Starfleet is unified, right? Politically unified. Um, the interventionism about having a government full of basically former freedom fighters slash terrorists, right? Who are like, well, we've got to get it done versus the prime directive. Like they are as, as just ideologically and how they're driven completely the opposite of the Federation in that respect. Yeah. they And the other thing is that the Federation has been at peace for the most part with some minor skirmishes for a really long time. And the Bajorans have known nothing but slavery and betrayal and a boot on their neck for like 40, 50 years. And they don't want to have to ask the Federation for help. Right. I mean, they're, and they're and that's of- definitely embodied by your introduction to Kira, who is our POV character for the whole series, right? And she is pissed that he's there at the beginning, you know? I mean, they, there's, her, their relationship does grow, but Kira is so antagonistic at the very beginning. She sees the potential for another occupation. She does, yeah. She's like, we finally get to make decisions for ourselves, and the first thing we do is bring in a group of people to tell us, you know, what to do and how to build our planet. And, I mean... We can look to Earth history. People that show up to other devastated countries and say, hey, I'm going to fix this for you. <laughs> there's a lot of bad endings there. Right. I mean, you don't get Japan most of the time. Right. You mostly get things like Iraq. Right. You most, you know, and and I could understand from Kira's perspective, I wouldn't trust anybody at that point. You just got your freedom. That you just made it too costly for them to maintain a presence there. The Cardassians have just left. But the sad reality is that there really isn't enough left over on the planet for them to sustain themselves. Yeah, and they're vulnerable as well. They're incredibly vulnerable to being attacked again. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, of course, this is all focused through the character of Kira, who her backstory is that she is a terrorist who, I mean, the Cardassians called a terrorist. She was a freedom fighter, essentially, for her her entire life, who then becomes, you know, one of the most sort of politically sensitive member of the military in for their entire planet, right? I mean, her uh, ability to have her necessity to be both a soldier 
um, as well as a diplomat. She is like she is the Secretary of State for the Bajorans, essentially, and she has to be the second in command to Cisco. And that's the thing I like, though, is that Cisco specifically asked for a Bajoran second in command. I mean, that was really savvy on his part. I I think the thing with Cisco that I really like is I think that he's very very smart in specific ways and is willing to make little compromises in specific ways that I don't think Kirk or Picard would have been able to. Right. That there are moments, and this is what I love about Cisco, where one of his his crew members will go like, screw this, I've got a moral thing. It's usually Kira, sometimes it's Odo. And they'll totally start breaking the law to protect like a group of Bajoran farmers or something like that. They've basically become sort of a criminal. There's like one where Kira goes off to help a bunch of people whose whose homes are about to be seized by something with the Bajoran government. And, of course, Starfleet is just like, hey, we're getting a bunch of phone calls. We need you to shut down your first officer. <laughs> and he starts throwing up red tape to the Bajoran leadership and going, I don't know. There's not a lot I can do here. <laughs> All the while, he knows he's getting here, here. The reception's getting bad. And I love that about him is that I think that ultimately Ben Sisko is somebody who trusts his people. He understands his people. He knows that. Uh, the red tape that he has is a pain in the ass, but also time it's something he can use as almost a weapon against people that he doesn't like. Sorry, you're, you just got to keep, you know, doing a safety check on your ship for another nine hours before we can <laughs> let you offload your stuff. And he will use it that way in ways that I don't think Picard would. Um, well, I mean, I've probably one of the most sub- substantive differences that, uh, you know, Cisco as rela- relating to the Bajoran arc, Cisco goes into the wormhole, this newly created wormhole, and discovers that there are sort of timeless, non-corporeal aliens who have been intervening with the planets around that part of Alpha Quadrant, specifically Bajor, for lots of years. And he is granted some kind of special status by them that the that the Bajorans recognize as sort of its own holy job. His only jo- his job description is I don't know what the he's, emissary he's kind is. Of like, he's kind of like their Moses to a certain extent, <laughs> somewhat. Yeah. Um. And he has to. He's a Starfleet officer, right? I mean, I think he he gets asked by Wei Yun, the the Dominion, on the question of gods. He says, "You don't. What do you believe in?" And he says, "There are things I believe in." You know, like he's a proper sort of Starfleet skeptic, and yet he also. I guess has to. I don't know whether it's a. I, he knows that he has to fulfill the role of the emissary as a necessity, or whether he's convinced early on that he must do it, and therefore it's his destiny to do it. It's that, that honestly, that's the part of the show that it loses me a little bit because whenever you have characters like, "Oh, we're destined to do this," it's kind of the laziest form of storytelling. But I think you can forgive it because they at least have a novel way to sort of thread it through a science fiction story rather than it being he's not he's not like a Skywalker. You know what I'm saying? No, no, it's it's not. It doesn't feel like it's a burden on the series. It's not omnipresent throughout the series. It's I mean, kind of it, it definitely rears its head in yeah. seventh season for sure. But for the most of it, it's just an annoyance that he sort of has to. It, it starts out as an annoyance and he kind of accepts it reluctantly and then he kind of, uh, you know, uses it to his advantage sometimes and and then sometimes it's it it's to his detriment as a starfleet officer and so it's it's this thing that he has to balance it's not like a it's not just a get out of jail free card for the writers it's it's something that's that's that he has to grapple with throughout the show it creates tension throughout the show because on one hand he is a religious figure to these people that he's there as an administrator for so 
on one extent, it's impossible for him to not use it improperly, even if he's doing it unwillingly, that if he makes a subspace call down to Bajor and asks for a favor, is somebody going to say no to the emissary? And they they know that. And I know that Kira even says, and she sort of has to admit later, that she does believe in him as the emissary, and she has to have this kind of mental balancing act, this juggling act in her head about how to act to this person who is both her commanding officer, her friend, someone that she sees in moments of vulnerability, but is also this revered figure to her. And Cisco does something that there's an episode of TNG called Who Watches the Watchers? that Picard is put into a very similar position where he's wrongfully thought of as a god by pre-industrial people. Picard just shuts that down. He doesn't want anything to do with it. I guess we could call it the reverse 3PO, (laughs) where, you know, in Return of the Jedi, you have them go, oh, man, we can use this to make them release us and help us into a war against the Empire. And I think that Sisko gets into kind of a middle ground, which is that, on one hand, he's not using these people, but he does participate in doing blessings for them or performing wedding ceremonies. He does a, an annual event where he does something for them. And I, it's not cynical. I think he's somebody who kind of falls deeply in love with Bajoran people and the Bajoran culture, mm. Bajoran history, Bajoran, even the religion. I wouldn't necessarily say he's a believer, but he's not not a believer at the end of the series even if he can explain it scientifically because he believes the prophets are wormhole aliens it, it it's still valid you know they may worship this but the the they're worshiping something real uh so to speak so i i mean he probably can but i mean it's not proper star trek unless that you have moral dilemmas yeah so for for cisco he's got to juggle the prime directive, you, know, you can't call down to Bajor and affect their society, and yet he has that power, and instead he sees it, you know, Spider-Man-like, this is a responsibility. So, like, minor blessings and all, that's his responsibility, uh, and he embraces it eventually. So, um, yeah, I, I, well, Picard can't be the Picard forever, because he's going to be there for that one episode. So, <laughs> it's all going to be settled for, for Cisco. He's got seven years to settle it, or not. So I think what what we we haven't sort of talked about is we've definitely talked about that this is Cisco, a Starfleet guy on a uh, on a Bajoran space station, and he's surrounded by aliens. But he did they did bring with him some you know some recognizable uh, Starfleet. So there's going to be Starfleet uniforms. You, there's going to be Chief O'Brien, who we all know who he is. You've got Dr. Julian Bashir and Dax. And I, I want to start with Dax as specifically as a character that is an interesting choice, one that I think kind of was like a crowbar that helped wrench open some ideas about storytelling that Star Trek didn't, hadn't done before. So Dax is the alien that can live more than one lifespan, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, can travel. It's a little worm that can travel to other people and carry with it the same memories and skills but but go into a different person and so they have this idea that the the trill can basically gender swap over their lifespan so uh cisco meets the the dax when dax is inside this old man who's like an ambassador right and has all these adventures this boozing and carousing with a with an old man and they have this great relationship and then the, that guy dies and and he gets to to uh, have an acquaintance with 
the Dax again, but this time as a young, smart, capable female in the form of Jadzia. Um, and I think uh, the way that they do, the way that they explore this, there are some ways in which um, you can't, it'd be impossible to tell this, these kind of stories with another character. And the one specifically is they have this prohibition about trills who are passed on to a new body, not consorting with their previous loves, right? This is, I don't know, I don't know if this is probably just a narratively convenient way to have like some kind of a romantic tension, but they had, I I believe, I think the first uh, gay kiss on Star Trek, which is a show that in the original series was known for having the first interracial kiss on television, full stop. Um, That's a, that's a pretty big deal for the sort of type of storytelling, the type of social social storytelling you can do with Dax. And I think they flubbed the landing with Dax, unfortunately. But I want to talk about her character specifically because of the ability to make those kind of storytelling, especially around gender and around the idea of someone's history with someone and how you treat and judge them. Uh, one of the things that I really like that I've seen going around late uh, in the last few months or a year or so is there's a there's a scene where uh jedzia dax meets an old friend of hers uh, this old klingon named kor and kor says um kurzon my old friend and she says it's it's jedzia now she says jedzia my old friend and and the meme is that like if if the klingons can figure it out and can call people by the right name and the right pronoun then so can you <laughs> nice that's nice D Space Nine is really the only show until Discovery that um, th- that embraced the idea of queerness uh, through through Jadzia, sure. But it's like it's not just that one. I mean, it's very rare. Uh, even so, on D Space Nine, it's like you know, Voyager didn't have any gay content. Um, the movies didn't have any gay content until you know the very end, where they suggest that Sulu is gay. Right. But in D Space Nine, it's not just that, you know, that one episode where uh, Jadzia kisses her old love when they they both happen to be in women's bodies. Uh, It's also I mean, it's very um, subtle, but there's uh, the one with Pell, the the, the, the Ferengi female that dresses up as a man. Right. Yep. uh, And falls in love with Quark. And she's. As as the the as a male character, she's telling Dax about this that she's you know that she's having problems, and Jadzia's going, oh yeah yeah you you know you're in deep. You, she realizes you're in love with Quark, and uh, and then she says something about uh, being a female in disguise. Says, you're a female. So so to Dax, <laughs> to Dax, this was a you know a, a, a two men or you know for them right. for her that right. was two men, and it seemed perfectly plausible, uh, which it should, you know, in a modern mind. So um, so it's stuff like that 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 D Space Nine was just a little bit you know uh, over the over the edge as far as uh, being open minded about this, but the rest of Star Trek had was kind of you know pretty uh backwards kind of kind of conservative and i think a lot yeah. of that, I mean, the, the episode about Riza shows how conservative oh, they were oh god there's, i have stuff to say about that there's no sex on Riza on deep space 9 none whatsoever but again i will say this about deep space 9 is deep space 9 is the only star trek program that was at least honest about what people used holodeck technology for <laughs> right mm. it isn't for doing you know murder mysteries <laughs> You, it isn't for you know dressing up and and uh, as you look at the you so got the idea that 
Quark employed Ferengi to go mop the holodeck in between. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he knew what people did it, and there was a lot of people just explicitly going, "Oh, you look heartbroken. I've got a program for that," <laughs> and openly and openly saying that what people did in there, and it was always different. I remember Barkley's sex program from Star Trek: The Next Generation is weirdly sexless, yeah, so and so scandalous too. Yeah, I know. So they're just very prudish, but I kind of uh, like the notion of just dropping all pretenses. So I know that Deep Space Nine was able to get away with that because I think they were always the redheaded stepchild of Star Trek. That sure. The Star Trek at that point, the two producers was it Brandon and Braga were the guys who had basically taken over TNG and sort of dictated the the philosophical and story path of the show. And they kind of kept up with TNG and then when Voyager started they jumped there. But they really didn't have their fingerprints on Deep Space Nine. That Deep Space Nine was able to get away with stuff that if they'd had a firmer hand, especially later stage Deep Space Nine, they never would have been able to do. And I think the episode with any kind of queer content, episodes with any kind of sexual content whatsoever, I think they would have poo-pooed it. They would have shut a lot of that down. Anything where Cisco has to make truly unpleasant choices to save the Federation, I think they would have stopped it. Yeah, it's disappointing. And just to close the bracket on Dax thing, I mean, they do a thing with the Dax character because I think the actress who played Dax did not want to be in the seventh season. And so they essentially recast. I don't think that they originally had, they thought that that, um, Jazzy was going to be for the whole thing. So they recast her as another, like, young female. And I thought the big missed opportunity there would have been after she married Worf, after she died, after men on the sh- the uh, the ship had all professed to fall in love with her, for her to come back as a young male. Yeah, would that would have been, been great. So much more interesting of an idea. And having to deal with the fact that clearly, I, we don't know, but I assume that Worf would have some latent homophobia because he's a Klingon and because I'm sure... The Klingons are homophobes. I'm positive. They would have had been to address that the ugliness of that through the these characters who know each other and who've loved each other. But now there's something else that's that's there. There's a there's a different scenario. I would I would assume that the Klingons are either really homophobic or shockingly woke. (laughs) But (laughs) nothing in between. They're like the Hell's Angels. You might like that. Well, they they have female warriors. I mean, I don't think they're necessarily a sexist society. You know, culture, but. I, the problem here is is that this was not planned, right, uh, right? You know, Terry Farrell leaves, and we've got one season, and this one season is going to have to, you know, we're gonna we have to close all the loops. We're ending this on a big, uh, you know, ten part story, Dominion War stuff. There's just no room for Esri, well, or, and, and, or you well, know, the, for a male Esri to be that complex a story. The, maybe. Cl- the closing of her arc, though, is terrible because it's finding a man. That is that is her destiny yeah. for Esri Dax, and it's really disappointing. And it was the man that pursued her at the beginning of the series right. when she was in a different body. Right. So I'm a bit disappointed by that. Um, I I like Dax a lot. The thing that I no, like I about loved, I loved the Jadzia Dax character a lot. I think Esri is a pale shade, and it's really I'm, disappointing. I'm going to disagree with you a little oh. bit there. Um, I do think it. I do think that it's interesting. I think it was really unfortunate that um, the da- the Terry Farrell had left the show underneath under the circumstances that she did because she was kind of forced out. She oh. she wanted opportunity to, to do other things, and so she had talked had asked about like being a recurring character. She didn't want to leave the show entirely. She just wanted to be able to negotiate how much how much she would be on the show. Oh, did she get and, Tasha Yard? Is that and, what ended and up it happening? Kind of be. I, I don't remember. I don't know the story on that one oh, okay. exactly, but but it was kind of. Um, 
she was sort of given a take it or leave it deal, and she didn't want to negotiate under those circumstances and was kind of forced out. Well, that's shitty then. And it, so it was super shitty. Yeah. And so that circumstances that circumstance sucks. Um, what I think is interesting is that they have a character who um, has the, where the the central premise is that they can switch hosts, and in order to pay that off, they have to switch hosts at the end of the show. And mm. so I think it's I think mm. it's. I think it's good that they do that at the end of the show. I also think it's interesting that they, rather than putting her in another really um, strong, strong-willed, uh, confident character, they put her in somebody who's the opposite of that. Which, which unfortunately breaks the entire thing that they've had about Trill, which is that they only want to have the most capable, bravest um, tr- Trill to be able to actually host them. Otherwise, it's a danger to them. And they kind of, I think they just threw that away because they were like, well, we want to do something. We have to think of something interesting to make this character do. And so they give her the worst job in Starfleet, the counselor. Yeah. The they, most ineffective I mean, plot job they, ever. They do, but then they like, they give her actual stuff to do that's not related to being a counselor. Um, sure, they have she, to. She's a bridge officer, um, kind of inexplicably, but <laughs> but she's, she contributes to the story, and she she contributes to the action in the scene a lot more than uh, other ship counselors have maybe done in, in the past, right? Yeah. Um, she wasn't. Yeah, just, let's not let, let's not put Deanna Troy on the back of every counselor ever. No, <laughs> as a representation, I, I think you know. I've even I've even played a counselor in a. Uh, Play by email role playing game in Star Trek, so I, I know how to I know how to play it. That's uh, like so that's that like playing the Bard in D and D or something, right? I like playing I, the Bard in D and I'm running a campaign that is Bards only. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> shut, shut that down. You're uh, like straight up a band, then. Yeah, it's a band. It's a band, and we've got like rock and roll rules, and yeah, yeah I, I kind of fiddled with the system. Anyway, uh, besides the point. The, but yeah, I mean, and Esri can't really be a counselor to these people that we know so well that they, you know, that the, the dynamic they're all creating each other through their dynamics. So a counselor at this point is like kind of redundant, you know. I also get the impression they all, that they all have their own. Yeah, I also get the impression that they don't um, show us explicitly because we don't meet Esri Dax until she's Esri Dax. But as plain old simple Esri, she was a competent and accomplished ship's counselor and it was this situation that she was thrown thrust into where she had to take on the dax host kind of unwillingly um uh to save its life that um that led to her being kind of the the misfit and the the lacking the confidence that she'd previously had Mm -hmm. so it's that wasn't a vetted host right she wasn't one of the vetted hosts and so i think what she's able to do is she's she finds a home on deep space nine where she can't really continue to work as in this role as a counselor she has elements of that to her job but her kind of job is to kind of figure out where she fits in now Hmm. and i do think that there's some interesting elements of that what's the name of the character mike gillis on um in twin peaks where in the second season the guy who's like the boyfriend who dresses like a greaser and goes off to fist mode is it james James, yeah so they have this this arc where you've already had something really amazing and interesting happen through the first season and they just decided to take this james character and throw him like in this weird subplot that's away from everyone else and you don't care about it at all with the lady and he's fixing her car and stuff and oh. I felt like the her being 
caught her being uh, doing having basically an elevator show or a prison show over like three episodes with Worf is just like I don't want to keep going back to this. This is not great. Are you accusing this of what I referred to before as uh, Kim Bauer syndrome? Kim, you have to unpack uh, that one for Kim me. Kim Bauer was the the daughter of the lead character on Twenty Four. She's Jack Bauer's daughter, mm. and in the first season, she's a big part of the plot because she's kidnapped. But she's not in the sec- she's not kidnapped, and she's not part of the terrorist plot in the second season. But they want to have her there, so they make up stuff for her to do that mm-hmm. is ridiculous, yes. and it yeah. doesn't feel like it fits in with the rest of the show, and it only exists to do something with an actor. Hmm. And it feels kind of like you're saying that's the case with Esri, is that, yeah. well, we want to do something. We can't not mention what happened to the Dax symbiont after Jadzia died. But I do think there was a there is a way I agree with you, Casey, to this degree. As I don't hate Esri in the way that I kind of feel like you're just like this is a wasted opportunity. But I do believe it's a wasted opportunity that if they'd had the opportunity to really challenging storyline where Worf's ex wife is a dude and sort of challenge that and actually let's talk about you know, feelings and emotions and leftover things and that this is the same person with a different body. And there's a lot of interesting, nuanced stuff that maybe 1999 television wasn't ready maybe, for. Maybe, But it would have been really ballsy to try to go there early, even if it's a little bit awkward, even if the politics aren't quite lining up with 2019. It would have been brave to go there. Yeah. And it could have been done as a one-off. There's, I think, one of the reasons that Esri isn't really that embraced is that, you know, she comes in very late. While we already have a huge cast of characters we want to explore, not just the main guys, but the Roms and the Nogs and the Lidas yeah. and the, uh, you know, it's such a wide cast. Why bring in a new person just to keep the Dax symbiont around? Let's let's feel her absence. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe you could do the, you know, they save the worm and the worm's in a... In, in you know in, in the wrong person sort of thing story that could have lasted an episode or two uh, and Worf dealing with it and then let's just move on uh, instead we have to find reasons for Esri to exist she's got like this that profiler episode where you know with the yeah. <laughs> with the X-ray vision stuff oh um, yeah <laughs> the murder mystery and go, yeah and she goes back home where you know and uh, where the, the, you know you were different you know stuff like that so we keep and I get it. It's like these are sort of ellipses where, oh, let's take a break from the stories we want to follow to follow this character that we've known for like four episodes, um, as opposed to, you know, giving this stuff to mourn. <laughs> so, you know, people we care about. Um, Quark's bar. So, That's yeah. a great. Well, it's, so, it's, it's almost good. like they. Sorry. To, no. It's almost like they, they have a new toy in their toy box. They feel obligated to focus yeah. some stories on yeah. it, and they don't seem as interested in, in those and stories as they really need to be. we've only got a season, you know? It's, yeah. it's the last season. So Esri's kind of a... Uh, if, you know, if, if Jadzia died in, like, the fourth season, then, you know, Esri's something. But in the seventh season, it's, like, oh, it's kind of too late for her to, to do stuff that to really be integrated into the show. So yeah. she's sort of a... A victim of that. Yeah, they're in the home stretch when they bring her in, and it's we got to finish this thing off. And we only have twenty something episodes to figure this, and it's a little weird to give some of those episodes away. You know, it's funny. I think I think the maybe Dax is the exception, but um, unfortunately, the Starfleet personnel are pretty boring compared to their alien counterparts. I mean, I think it took 
it took you, uh, you know, because O'Brien is the kind of schlub that we, uh, that I and my middle aged at least associate with the most now. But, um, uh, you know. Because he's a dad with two young kids? Yes. (laughs) But, I mean, you know, Julian Bashir wasn't as interesting until you realized that he was an illegally, uh, genetically enhanced human being who's nearly perfect. Oh, his parents literally Lachlan him? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To get him into school? But you know what? I mean, he's, he's, I think Bashir is a good character. I love Bashir. He is made so much more interesting it looking through the lens of and i'm assuming this was also improvised that he just had to pull his punches for a lot of his life you know and that that is a that's actually quite fascinating what i kind of like about uh, dr bashir is that i think that in a different sort of show he would have been the rich kid hmm. that i think what's really clear in the first episodes that introduce him that he's so gung-ho to do frontier medicine and he says that right in front of kira and she's like oh wow yeah this is my home <laughs> um thanks Nice to be nice to see you roughing it over there, buddy. But you get the impression that the thing that separates Bashir from the rest of the crew is that Bashir is someone who has really never had anything bad happen to him before in his life. That he's never faced tragedy or real hardship. He's probably lived on Earth in paradise for a really long time. That most of his travels around the universe have probably kept within Federation space. And this is his first time really going there. I mean, it's admirable that he wants to go to a place where he could have done research in the most luxurious station in the world, but he chose to go to Deep Space Nine. Um, but if you compare him to the other crew members, like Kira, whose whole life has been fighting the Cardassians, um, you have Miles O'Brien, who's fought in war before, you have uh, Cisco, who lost his wife. All of them have faced horrible things before. Dax has how many lifetimes of possible tragedies that, that right. she, she slash he has gone through. And you have this guy who is so excited, so fucking excited that a spy wants to talk to him. <laughs> and he wants to be in a story. He really, really wants to be in this story. And I love that about him. He's so gung-ho when he first meets Garrick in the first season. He runs into Ops and he's like so excited. I think I'm a contact. I think. And then he like specifically tells Cisco, uh, he's like, oh, don't worry. You know, Starfleet medical secrets are safe with me, sir. And everyone else is kind of rolling their eyes. But he's so excited. I mean, yeah. he's such a gung-ho guy because not a lot of really big, exciting things have happened to him. Uh, before this show, he's probably never been shot at. He's probably never been in, on a ship during a battle. And you kind of see him become somebody who's much more nuanced about this, who's seen casualties come in, who is much more adult and much more measured by the end of the show. He goes from being this guy who won't stop hassling you because he really wants to be your friend to kind of sneaking in and becoming your friend over the course of seven years. <laughs> and I kind of love that about him, but he doesn't yeah. lose that boyishness. That's what I find interesting about the Bashir character is how much he changes and how how we see the events of the series impact him. Um, over the, and also how we see his relationship with, with Miles O'Brien develop. Yeah. There was a Cisco. You had a, a great episode on this. Actually, I'll, I give you credit, and anyone that's listening to this that wants to hear about the um, O'Brien Bashir bromance should definitely tune in to give me that Star Trek. Um, great, great episode. Yeah, I mean those two, and you know where the the, the turning point is is when they get drunk together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's an episode where they get drunk together, and after that. You know, they're they're no longer the you know they're friends after that. So it feels very organic. A lot of Deep Space Nine feels 
organic as far as how characters develop. Uh, I mean, just just the, the the Star Trek twist, really, of having Cisco have his son there, uh, his young son, and the young son does not ever want to become a Starfleet officer. Right, right. You know, he's no Wesley Crusher. He wants to go his own way, and his father is totally supportive of that. So I love that. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. of that is is like anti TV in a way. Uh, we we were so used to formula, and in the formula, Kirk and Picard would uh, find that they have sons and uh, send them away. <laughs> we can't have that here. Or uh, it, or Wesley's the son, and of course he wants to become a Starfleet officer, and then that's his tre- you know that until he doesn't. Um, but with Jake, Jake seems much more real and that relationship feels, feels more real and there's no manufactured angst about this. I love that because almost any other show with the military dad and the artsy son, (laughs) there's like this, this really well-worn path of. I have to tell my dad that I don't want to do his job and the strict, you know, authoritarian dad, you know, having a big fight with them and them reconciling over a season. And they don't do that. What I love is that Ben Sisko's a really fucking good dad. Yeah, for real. Is, I, is, I remember hearing him talk in interviews that, that the reason, the single reason why he wanted to audition um, was that he was playing a, a black dad in the future who's a single father. And he's like, okay, I want to play it. So just that in general of, of an idea is kind of an amazing thing. And also he's like, he's like, I wish I could be half the father that he is to Jake Sisko. Like the I, relationship oh. is so sweet. Um, you can see the you can see how much he loves and uh, wants his son to be happy, how much he reigns him in, but also how much, how much leeway he gives him because he knows he's a teenager and he has to make his own mistakes. It's just so it's awesome. It's great. It's not it. It could be syrupy if it were done with worse actors and with worse writers, but it's not. And he doesn't just love his son. He likes his son. That right. they are very different people in some ways. That Jake is someone who's sort of drawn towards writing, and and he wants to be a reporter, but also wants to be a novelist. And you see all of these these elements of him. He's also really good at Domjot. <laughs> I could have seen an ep- a couple episodes of of uh, Jake and Nog Domjot hustlers. <laughs> that would have been a lot of fun. But you got to fuck around with Domjot. Picard lost his heart over that game. <laughs> but. <laughs> What I really love with with Jake and you know Ben Cisco and his son is that he respects his son. When he does find out that Jake finally tells his dad he doesn't want to join Starfleet, he's cool with it. And there's this like slight bit of resistance, but then he just goes with it. And I just that is so fucking refreshing after so many military dads saying, "No, you're going to be a carbon copy of me," and just accepting they accept the difference with each other. They love spending time with each other. They give each other crap. They're affectionate towards each other. They share hobbies. They cook together. They go to baseball games together. And my favorite Ben Cisco dad moment in the entire show is early on. Uh, ben Cisco does not like Jake hanging out with Nog. He doesn't think this young Ferengi juvenile delinquent is a good influence on Jake. And he's just like, oh, he keeps telling him, I don't want you hanging around with that Ferengi. And there's this moment where he kind of walks in and sees them together, but they don't see they don't see Cisco. And he realizes that Jake is teaching Nog how to read. 
And in that moment, you see Ben Sisko's attitude completely change silently, where he realizes it's not about Nog being a bad influence. It's the respect he has for his son because he realizes that Jake is a good influence. And that's the same influence that eventually leads Nog to become the person who wants to join Starfleet. Right. Where the two of them their relationship completely changes where suddenly Nog is the good kid who cares about rules. And Jake is now the sloppy roommate who (laughs) keeps him up and he just doesn't, you know, get the perfect corners on his bed. And I kind of love that reversal and it feels so organic, but I love that it's because Ben Sisko knew to back off and respected his son as a person saying, my son is, is going to make that Ferengi kid better by being his friend and knowing when to let him do that. And I love that about Ben Sisko. He's a great fucking yeah, And dad. it's also one of the lessons, <laughs> it's one of the lessons of Star Trek, the whole thing where he, you know, he lets him be a writer um, without, without resistance. If we're living in this world, uh, people are, you know, uh, Renaissance men, Renaissance women. Uh, that's the that's what we saw with Kirk and with Picard. They are military officers, but they are versed in the in the in letters. We have an engineer on this show who plays the the cello. You know, it's <laughs> it's it, you have the arts, the humanities are part of the package that Starfleet teaches you to respect. Uh, and so even the scientists are interested in literature and in music and in, in the arts. So in this world, you can become anything you want to become. That's that's the Star Trek dream. There are no financial impediments. There are no racist impediments, sexist impediments. You are free in this humanity. You are free to explore yourself and become whatever you want to be. And some people kind of, uh, you know, meander like uh, Bashir's dad. But um, whatever your dream is, you have the resources to, to, to follow that dream. So why would Cisco prevent his son from doing that? Uh, just because it's not what he imagined it would be or it's not his own path? That's what humanity is in that future. I think that's one of the lessons of Star Trek. And of course, Cisco has to respect that. I just realized in thinking about this, Siskoid, is that maybe one of the reasons that Ben Cisco is so cool with his son not following his path as he didn't mm. follow his dad's. Right. That his yep, dad exactly. brought him up to be a chef. Yep. And he still shares that love of food. One of the things that, that Cisco does is he invites his officers over and cooks for them. That he is he's just as picky about food as his dad is. That his dad did impart that in him, just the way that he's imparted his Starfleet ethics on his son. So they do share something and they do inherit something from their dads. But they don't become a carbon copy of their dad, and that's what I kind of love or, about them. Or they don't become the runaway from home punk, punk rebel. Yeah, either. yeah. And you see these yeah. three generations of Cisco's who like each other's company, even if you know Jake doesn't like to have to wash vegetables when he goes home and meets Grandpa. <laughs> and I, I kind of love. It. There's a push and the pull of it, but it kind of gets into what makes Cisco different than than Kirk and Picard. Is those were both military men who chose a life of service who did not make time for family. They were somebody who 
just you know sort of specifically decided they were not going to get married they were not going to have children that this ship is their life the ship is the closest thing to a spouse that they're going to allow themselves to have and in the case of Picard Picard didn't even socialize with his officers it was one of the things they made a point of in the last episode of the next generation that they all hung out with each other you know Riker and Jordy and Beverly Crusher and Worf and and Data but Picard was always the guy in the office that he had that professional distance from everyone else that he kind of wanted that distance because it was safe. He wasn't comfortable around children or any of the social elements on the ship. But if you look at Cisco, it's a complete inversion. Cisco is a part of the lives of the people that serve under him. He takes them out to hollow sweet baseball games. He cooks for them. He knows their spouses. They know his spouse. They know Jake. And there's a sense of inviting these people in to become an extended family rather than just co-workers, even if they're close co-workers. I mean, with Picard, Beverly Crusher and Guinan are the only people that ever get that close to him. Hmm. Everyone else is is a co-worker. They're a respected co-worker who sees little pieces of him. But he always sees them kind of uncomfortable when they get close to that stuff. And Cisco doesn't have that. Cisco is somebody who makes the station his home and makes these people his family. Yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> We're all crying. Sorry. <laughs> no. Yes. They, uh, there is, I mean, we've sort of been talking about sort of the the social foundation of the of this, the series, but I think one of the things also that separates this seven-season-long arc is that there is a point, and the demarcation point for me, the K3 boundary for DS9 is the appearance of the Defiant as a ship. So what you could you could draw a conclusion that, oh, well, having a Defiant makes you be able to tell more Star Trek-like shows because it can go into the Gamma Quadrant and find new worlds, which is fine. That's cool. That's all right. But it's the, the inclusion of the Defiant, which is specifically a warship, um, that is there because there is a threat. And the the idea of a sort of total war with another alien species is almost completely virgin territory for Star Trek writers in the form of the Dominion War, and we have to talk about the Dominion War mm. as part of uh, as part of TNG. And like I said in the intro, it's about testing the ideals of Starfleet in the face of annihilation. Yeah, and you get to see that with. The storylines involving Ben Sisko being called to Earth and people on Earth not used to having security officers stationed around streets. The and the pushback it, you get from that. It um, was a show about nine eleven before nine eleven. Yes, it was. The sort of what do we allow fear to make us change about our lives? And then you see in in Ben Sisko's dad somebody who's like, I'm not gonna change the way I live and be frightened of my neighbors because of what might happen. And if we change that, what are we fighting for? And having right. that become an element of the show, I think it handled it better than what we saw with TNG with the Borg threat because we never really went to Earth and talked to regular people about the Borg threat. And most of the station is not members of this crew, whether it's the Bajoran militia or Starfleet. Through characters like Quark and, and others that hang around the bar, you have people that are trying to just live normal lives who are never going to get into a battle with the Dominion, who ultimately have to just live in the shadow of all these big doings. And when suddenly the place you live is not just this hub of commerce, but maybe ground zero for a horrible terrorist attack by the, you know, the Jemadar, um, 
it's definitely something you have. And when you have a conversation like you had between Garrick and uh, Quark, I believe it's in like season five, where they talk about how they really are at the mercy of the Federation. That right? What do they 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 use the comparison of root beer that it's cloying and sweet and happy mm-hmm. and and as Garrick says, vile and insidious. <laughs> Because as Quark says, the more you drink it, the more you get to like it. And the Federation, this sort of happy, secular, every pluralistic, everyone sort of gets along, high ideal, we don't need money kind of society, is the only thing that's stopping you know them from probably being lined up and shot. And the sense of hoping that they're going to win, because I might not love those people, but they're the only chance we got. <laughs> yes, that's good. I, I, I think... I had thought about this, uh, about the inclusion of the Defiant, and I, 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 I don't know if it was – you can't tell if it was ever an intentional thing of they like, well, then they're going to need to worship because there's going to be a lot of war. Was it like a concession, though? Was the idea a concession uh, that the writers in the first couple seasons had said, We're, we'll do okay with just runabouts. We can still be a Star Trek series if we have sort of recognizably star f- interiors of Starfleet ships? Um or was the Defiant like, yeah, we kind of need to get out there a little bit more. We're running out of stuff to do over here. <laughs> well, they didn't use the Defiant that much for exploration. So, it's you know, most of the stories, the explorer-type stories that you wanted to do, you could have done with a runabout. Sure. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's not really that, I think. It's just but you can't get you, you can't get the whole crew on board one runabout. It's just too crowded in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's Star Trek, and you you like the ships, and you want the ships, and I think the the fans wanted the ships. What what this did was give a reason, a legitimate reason for a ship to be attached to that station. So we're we're you know it, it, it just seems to be. Again, playing the long game, even though they're sort of improvising. So they start off in a way, but because of the Dominion threat, they go, hmm, well, now would be a good time to introduce a ship and let's make it a badass ship. Let's make it a Borg fighter. Uh, you know, that all that stuff. Let's it's got put a, a cloaking device. device on yes. It. Yeah. Yeah. yes. Let's, let's break all the rules. No nacelles, vis- you know, outside the, the ship. It just looked, it's the Millennium Falcon. So, um, <laughs> That's what it is. It's, you know, it, we, we, let's not <laughs> let's not mince words. It's the Millennium Falcon, and it, it sort of drives the same way. And they they know they know they've got now the technology to to stage bigger battles. So they want a more nimble ship. It's not just going to be you know fixed, big fixed starships kind of firing from a standing position, which is a lot of what we got you know up to that point. So. Um, they just made it for that. And it's still going to be small and still going to be just our crew. And we don't need another star, you know, a whole Starfleet crew to demand this because it, it you know, it only fits like 40 people. So, um, but it feels organic. You know, it feels like, okay, we got the show to this point. Now we need a ship. It hmm. doesn't feel artificial to me. Hmm. Uh, and it doesn't feel like if they put the Defiant on D Space Nine on the, in, the, in the pilot, then. It's it's you know the show's not different enough. Now they've got a ship. Now they're always going to be leaving the station. Now the station isn't the focus. So now we can split the focus, and eventually it's easy to split the focus because they bring in Worf, and Worf often commands that ship, so they kind of like uh, two storylines going on. 
um, but it feels like a response to what is actually happening on the show, hmm. which is the Dominion threat rears it, its it head. Does, it doesn't feel like it's wedged in there or that it was no. designed by committee. It feels like right. the show got a ship because the characters needed a ship, mm-hmm. not because the showrunners felt like we could tell different stories with the ship. It was like, well, we need a ship now. Hmm. We need this show of strength now, so we're going to incorporate that into the show and it also doesn't Cisco worked on it and you know he went to get it and it's overpowered and they can't use it and like cisco going well give me that ship that doesn't work yeah because i got a guy who's used to stuff not working <laughs> let um, chief o'brien do his magic that's exactly a kind of, i kind of love that about it because the show is about people basically fighting technology to do what it's supposed to do uh, but C- yeah. certainly there is no single character where that is embodied more than in Miles Edward O'Brien, who is either fighting with his wife or fighting with the computer. I, either way, I don't know. <laughs> but what I love is that the, the Defiant does not take over the whole show. It doesn't Fonzie no. or Urkel the whole thing where pretty soon, you know, because it would have been so easy. Because did you on, just use Urkel as a verb? Well, Urkel did. <laughs> I mean, Urkel was a guest character who took over an entire show and became like merchandising glut in the early 90s. And it would have been so easy for them with the Defiant because the Defiant is almost built to be a cool ship to Star Trek fans. It does everything that a Klingon bird of prey does. Plus it has the interior like, uh, like, a like a Federation ship. It's sort of like if we built it to do all the really cool things that only alien ships are allowed to do in Star Trek, it does it. So the Defiant is Poochie the rockin' dog of Star Trek? Is yeah, that except they're smart enough to make it break all the time. <laughs> yeah. And I, I kind of love, even though it's a, short, a ship built to fight the Borg, it shows up briefly in Star Trek First Contact and it gets blown away, kind of. <laughs> um, I, I always kind of feel bad for it because it, it goes there and it stumbles a lot. And the same thing is... The first fight the Defiant has with the the uh, Dominion gets its ass kicked, mm-hmm. and I kind of like that. It it makes it more of a little scrapper rather than this overpowered, you know, you know, wish fulfillment fan toy that it co- so well, easily could have been. It kind of reinforces the the fact that the Federation's not going to win this war against the Dominion by sheer force of strength. No. Right. It, they have they're right. going to have to think their way out of this. They're going to have to work diplomatically with their with their allies, with the Klingons, with the Romulans, and they're they're not going to be able to just shoot their way through the Dominion. Yeah, otherwise they would just build a the, shit ton the, of defiance. The strongest best ship that they could build was the Defiant and it <laughs> tore itself apart and right. was no match for the Dominion. Yeah, I I kind of love that about it. I love that it's a ship that it just shouldn't exist. Yeah. Um, and it's it's based on I mean the design is based on what they could do as well because they've got all these huge sets you know the mm-hmm. promenade the ops they're huge sets okay we're gonna bring in a ship how much can we build oh. Oh, we can kind of build a bridge you know we're not gonna see a whole lot of the defiant except the bridge and very small sets um, you know so because of that if if they'd gone with let's build a ship and a station at the, the beginning of the show uh, then D Space Nine would not be as impressive because it would be sharing, you know, set space with an entire starship. But here it's like, well, we were going to do like a smaller, it's a smaller design because that's all we got room for. (laughs) I love the idea that some of that, a lot of these things, especially on TV, start off as necessity because of, you know, production constraints. But if you think about production constraints, I mean, the uh, the promenade set is enormous and it's great and Star Trek has never looked like that for a TV show before. But by the time you get to seasons six and seven, 
the budget they put into space battles is unlike anything that Star Trek has ever done. Like it is on a it's on a scale that you would think a Star Wars movie would have with sort of like mm-hmm. the number of things flying around at the screen at once. And I think that in and of itself was kind of like a big fan fuck yeah moment for Star Trek is where yeah we finally get to see these huge fucking battles it's like. We've had this promise of hundreds of ships. Now we're right. looking at right. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ships. And ships that we off. don't often get to see fighting. Like, we get to see, like, Romulans getting into fights. And it's like, oh, a bunch of Klingon birds of prey are swooping down on these Dominion ships. And it's like the stuff we don't really get to see and we just hear about as uh, somebody hand, walks in and hands a tablet to Picard. <laughs> and it's a tablet that has, like, 12 triangles on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love getting to finally see that stuff. And I think CGI was kind of just getting to the point where it was easy for them to do that without actually having to blow up models because you're like, shit, how many of these Klingon birds of prey do I got to build? I don't know. You're right in saying that this was like an era that was a transition period from when they were doing exclusively kit bashing model work, making those those starships. And and then also then becoming starships created entirely in 3D because Voyager was the first time that they had, had done that. And, you know, Voyager is some point during the midway, midway point of DS9. Um, so, like, you get to late, late, late DS9 and you see, like, the Breen ships. And the Breen ships do not look like a TNG ship. They look like they were made in 3D Studio Max on someone's computer. And in that respect, you're kind of like, I'm glad that they can do 500 of them on screen at once now. But also, they kind of look a little jankier and not as cool as the sort of your, your if TNG you're, If you're only seeing bash. one of them and it's right in the middle of the screen and yeah. it's full scale, then you see the seams in it. But if right. you put 500 of them on screen and they're all this big, then... Uh, it's more convincing. The brain ships kind of look like Lego spaceships that I built when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> They're just kind of moving off in every direction. There's such a weird. They, the brain are such a weird choice. So anyone who hasn't doesn't knows that uh, the Cardassians end up allying with the Dominion, of course, because they're the bad guys. And the Cardassians the, the can't get it done, and so they, the uh, Dominion make a stealth treaty with the Breen, who I think prior to this series. They're only mentioned on screen by Riker, who talks about a brain disruptor. The possibility, and then so you don't. We have no know anything about them, and you they come on, and they're these like Bubba Fett looking motherfuckers. They You're look like, like that outfit that Leia disguised herself yes, in as a bounty oh, hunter yeah, yeah. in Return of the Jedi. Yeah, yes, I think it was a direct reference to that. But, yeah, and, it's a payoff. It's a payoff to a joke because the Breen are actually have a lot of mentions across. Uh, well, maybe more of D Space Nine, but. Uh, you know, they start off in TNG, but every time they mention the Breen, it's oh, they come from a cold planet. Uh, you know, we keep hearing details about the Breen, which don't seem to mesh together very well. Uh, and then, so eventually, seeing the Breen, I thought was at the time uh, was elating. You know, it's like oh, the Breen, and yes, they are as weird as we might have imagined because only we, you know they kept referencing. It was like the race that we reference when we need to say something. You know, just like. Uh, just a comment about a, an alien species, they started using the Breen, and none of it made sense. So when we see them, uh, you know, they've got the, they've got the weirdest ships possible as well. For all, for all of the, the sort of cracks you can make them, they're one of the only aliens that consistently doesn't get translated for our ears. Yeah. Which makes mm-hmm. it, that which gives them a little more mystery that and you can't and ever see their faces. And we never see faces. their face. Yes. And, you know, so, yeah. so they, they keep the mystery of it. So I think the Breen are like a fun invention. They, they resisted the urge to just slap a different forehead appliance on a new alien <laughs> and call it, call it a day. It would have been easy. I kind of I love that they all seem to be uniformly just assholes. 
that just <laughs> and then they just like push past people and you're like you dicks I mean like on every level they just seem like really unpleasant people that don't get trans <laughs> everyone seems to be constantly annoyed with them except Wayun <laughs> and I kind of I kind of dig that. And I do love the kind of the kind of growing sense that Damar has as head of the Cardassian Union that they're getting fucked over and that the Breen are suddenly eating their lunch. And yep. you're like, who the fuck are these guys? And it's like, these guys, why are they allowed to go through our database? And Wayun is just being his usual slimy, condescending self. Like, oh, we're all friends here. You know, just like, you know, just like, you just get in line, Damar. And then Damar just gets sick of eating shit eventually. And, uh, yeah. can I, can I mention Damar? I think is one of the be- most beautiful organic creations sure. on this show. Yeah, sure. For, for sure. Is that Damar basically starts out as a featured extra. Who's just, I guess you could say, second in command to Golducott. He's like the helmsman. Yeah, he's it's the like guy. A helman, helmsman on a, like a cargo freighter, like a nothing burger of a ship. <laughs> yeah, he's just this yeah. guy who just keeps getting brought back, maybe because he's totally cool wearing the really heavy appliances of being a Cardassian. And he gets a few lines here and there. And unlike every other Cardassian we see, he's kind of like the perfect Cardassian. He's this guy who's a good soldier, who follows the rules. He really doesn't want to be the boss. He just wants to see, you know, the glorification of his people. He just wants to follow orders and do things because he believes in the Cardassian Union. And you see him forced into a position mostly because of, you know, Gul Dukat fucking him over and taking off. That suddenly he kind of gets pirated up to being the head of the Cardassian Union and under the thumb of this condescending, you know, Wayun, who just treats him like shit over and over and over again. You see him descend into like becoming a drunk and becoming depressed until eventually he has too much and he accidentally becomes George Washington. <laughs> he doesn't want to become George Washington, but he does. He, he's not disposed to being that sort of person, but you know, who else is going to do this? And I kind of another love- exa- it's another example of the improvised nature of the story arcs because Casey Biggs was brought in. To do to, a glorified extra with one line in that in that you know, blaze of glory or whatever episode it was, and and he never thought it would amount to more. Yeah. And look at look at that character's arc, how important he became to the end. So none of it is planned. Everything is based on what has gone before. The writers are looking at, you know, this episode just went out. I'm looking at it and I'm thinking potential and you know they're 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 building the story on top of their stories. So it's one of the things that I find amazing about the show. I think it's also a real advantage to being an original property that isn't an adaptation, which is that anyone can become a main character if you just mm-hmm. have the right combination of actor and opportunity in the writing that you let something become what it's organically becoming in the writing that when you adapt something, you have this template of who is and isn't an important character. And there's usually a lot more resistance to following these little organic things that sort of slowly pull you into the direction of someone like Damar becoming an important character. Yeah. And instead of fighting that, you're like, no, this is this is a perfect placement. Of course, Damar is going to become more and more important. And I love that. I love that ability to just kind of go with it. I think Walking Dead is the only adaptation that ever feels like it has the freedom to both do this in a good and bad way of just totally mm-hmm. break from it and going, no. It feels right for this character as we've written them in this show 
to start pulling in this direction and allowing it to go there, even if it contradicts the source material. And I think this is a place where allowing the thing that you've built, both intentionally and unintentionally, and just letting it become something great. And Damar is one of those characters that could have just been an actor who appeared once as sort of a paying gig on Star Trek, but they just kept calling him back and kept calling him back. So or, it's like a lesson to actors everywhere is take that job. Or you could have been similar but different. You could have been the actor who plays Morn and you just like the costume so much that he's just in almost every episode saying nothing. <laughs> you never know. I mean, Morn is beloved. I guarantee you Morn has an action figure. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Quark's bar is an interesting, also fast to hear that we haven't even talked about. I mean, the Ferengi as as an idea, like the reason why there's continuity to the Bajoran characters on Deep Space Nine is because it's their station now, right? The reason why there is continuity for Quark being on the station, both during the Kardashian occupation and afterwards is, well, fuck it, there's money to be made, you know? Yeah. And that is a stark contrast to everyone else's motivations and makes him him and every other Ferengi as a character all that much more ripe to sort of as yet another facet looking in on this conflict. I, I absolutely agree. And I think what I love about it, again, is that it allows Quark to become a nuanced character in, you know, seven seasons of a TV show that you wouldn't get you know, by design, if he's only appearing on five or six episodes across seven seasons. Wait, was he the original, Armin Shimmerman, was he the original Ferengi? Was he yeah. the first Ferengi? He was or, the first or Ferengi. Or one of the first Ferengi? Well, I think he was one, uh, one of the first, but he was the most prominent in that episode. So he's like, yeah. he's, he's like Golducott. He's like Mark Alemo. They started off and did the first version, and then now they move to Deep Space Nine and do like the most complex version of that alien that had been done up until that point. Yeah, I think Max Grodenchik was also on that first episode. So nice. They're, they're the two Ferengi instigators or, you know, the creators of that race. Has there ever been an alien species on Star Trek that has been rehabilitated like the Ferengi? They were supposed oh. to be the new Klingons. They were supposed to be the new big bad because they were all like, you know, super capitalistic pirates with laser whips. And <laughs> we were supposed to be kind of scared of them. And I think Next Generation and then later Deep Space Nine, there was a recognition of, okay, they're goofy looking. Let's just own that. What can we do with them without changing anything that we've stated about them so far? And then finding a way to make them work in the ecosystem of all these alien species that... People aren't afraid of the Ferengi. There's even an episode where Quark gets a group of Ferengi together to go rescue his mom. And only one of them wants to fight. I mean, it's like Quark, Rom, Nog, uh, Brunt, the shitty-ass um, IRS guy who's just a fucking asshole, but he's disgraced and needs work at that point. Um, and you've got this one guy who really seems to wish he was born a Klingon because he just wants to stab Jemadar. Um but yeah, he's, he's like that one weirdo. But again, people would laugh at the idea of a Ferengi who really wants to be a fighter and an assassin because that's their reputation. But I love that this is a show that allows those weirdos to also appear, not just the sort of perfect embodiment of what this species wants, you know, in their culture. And also the, the Ferengi as characters as being a mainstay of this sets a sets a tone the story can be very dark but also at the same time the existence of ferengi in this universe are so silly they're so there's such fodder for being laughed at because they're so ridiculous that also that sort of adds to the richness of it is you can have a story that is just about the ferengi doing like 
silly, ridiculous, stupid things, and it's totally in keeping with the the tapestry that you're trying to weave. Like I think what is there's um. This is uh, after the Cardassians take this, take back the station, and Kira is sort of trying to lead a resistance cell to take back the station or to allow Cisco to come back with Starfleet. And um, Nog gets caught trying to sabotage something, and uh, so he's Rom, this is or Rom excuse me, you're right, Rom, Rom gets Rom gets caught trying to sabotage something, and he's playing his character totally straight. He's like, if it's my time to die, it's my time to die doing this drama in the way that someone who is likely looking at being executed by the people who run this station and then his wife immediately cuts to whenever he makes mention of being executed starts to cry in this hilariously like this and you know weird high pitched yeah, squi- yeah. another <laughs> another show is going to have like ugly crying or something right but in this series with a ferengi it's okay to have those two things juxtaposed right next to each other one deadly serious and the other just laughably ridiculous because they're the ferengi and one doesn't crush the other right yes because we know rom and rom <laughs> is kind of a dorky guy and he's a dorky guy with a heart of gold and it's that rom is a great example of another one of those characters that was allowed to grow in the telling of the story right and he creates a an element of humanity in Quark and in his son Nog. But you also get to see this person who does not make a good first impression. That when you first see Rom, you think he's like a dope. You think that he's a lackey and a not very smart guy who works for his brother because where else is he going to go? Mm-hmm. Well, and he he shows up in the pilot, but then we don't see him again for that entire season. He's not in the right. pilot. In the pilot, isn't he just like a waiter? Yes. And, you know, he's not yet the brother. So it's like, oh, let's give Jake a a, um, uh, Ferengi friend and he's going to need a father. His (laughs) uncle is Quark. Well, why, you know, and we've got these actors here. Uh, Let's do something with them. You know, again, it's the needs of the production created something that they hadn't expected. And again, this, you know, he has a huge arc. Uh, and is one of the the better characters on the show. He feels like he's one of the leads, even though, you know, he's a supporting character. Yeah, and I love that he goes. You you think that he's this dope at first, but the thing is, he's just guileless. Yeah, that yeah. he's a Ferengi who's trying to be a good Ferengi, who's trying to hunt down profit, who hopes to inherit his brother's bar. But what you sort of discover over time. He's kind of a Columbo, is that <laughs> he's this technological genius, that he's a genius, but just not in any way that Ferengi society values. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of, because of those societal gravity wells, is being pulled in a direction that doesn't value him or the differences in him, that he doesn't as they say, have the lobes to be a good businessman. He's not ruthless. He's not devious. He's far too sweet and giving. Um, he's kind. Uh, he's charitable, which is a big fucking no-no. <laughs> but he's a technological genius. Right. And it's those moments where you realize that he, because of his brother's cheapness, he's had to improvise in ways that make even the stuff that Chief O'Brien does look completely normal. Right. That I think at one point they have to take apart the uh, hollow suites to try to find a fault in it. And they realize that one of the things holding it together is a spatula because it just is made of the, <laughs> the perfect alloy to conduct energy and... And that Rom has been keeping his his brother's bar together with pieces of garbage for years <laughs> because he has to, because that's what he's allowed, because his brother is so goddamn cheap. 
And I love that about this guy being a secret genius that nobody foresaw because Rom is treated by his brother like being an idiot. Yeah. And he's he acts in such a way where he internalizes and thinks himself to be an idiot. Man, and, and just this props to how good of casting Armin Shimmerman is. Is like he not only has the physiology of like a squat, small, ball headed guy, but he's that that voice, his vocal performance for that character is so great, so fantastic. And those little moments where Quark is so unferengi and he's so uh, he's ashamed of it. Where you see moments of kindness in him that he desperately doesn't want anyone to see because he likes to cover it up with something greedy or devious because <laughs> he doesn't want to hurt his reputation. I love that about Quark. So one other thing I love about the Ferengi episodes in particular is the way that they make pop culture references that I don't really think appear anywhere else in Star Trek in this form. But like direct references to... Uh, lines of dialogue and shots and scenes from other series. And one of them is when um, Quark is appointed the chief negotiator for the for the Grand Nagus, for the Ferengi Empire and dealings with the Dominion. And there's this scene that's straight out of The Godfather. Um, <laughs> that, is, that is, like, it, it plays perfectly. And also you're like, wait a minute, I, never, I know. And then it passes and you forget that, that it even happened. And then there's another one later on um, in the episode, The Magnificent Ferengi, which is a little more on the nose, right. but um, where they're assembling the group and they count on their fingers like, we've got two, we've got three, <laughs> we've got four, just like from The Magnificent Seven. But my, my favorite is when they pay off this kind of, this sort of arc of referencing all these films more and more directly is in the, like, the penultimate episode of the series where um, the Ferengi uh, alliance is becoming more and more progressive and Quark as the prototypical Ferengi objects to it he shouts the line must be drawn here this far and no further <laughs> and it's a, it's a direct reference to not just pop culture but to one of the Star Trek movies it's a line from First Contact and I, I just love how, how meta it gets and how how, separate, how how it's able to kind of poke fun of it Star Trek's able to poke fun of itself through, through the Ferengi that's great uh, we have so much to talk more to talk about, but when we haven't covered enough of it, I want to I want to mention I think probably a fan favorite episode because I think it might be an example of uh, fan service done very well. Uh, you know they dip their toes in nostalgia a lot throughout the uh, Star Trek series up until now. I mean they have. DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy and James Doohan, they appear on episodes, right, because they want to include them in this universe. But when it comes time to do it on Deep Space Nine, they kind of are at a point technologically and they're at a point in their confidence and storytelling that what are they going to do now? They're going to insert the characters into an episode of TOS and construct a whole plot around this. To me, this is like... This is like the perfect amount of fan service. And then when you go any, any more than this, then it becomes a little bit too much to handle but i think the it is probably one of the most enjoyable uh of the of the entire series and also has i think the best trek retcon joke that has ever been made I oh think. trials and tribulations yes trials and tribulations where they uh they go back to troubles with tribbles and uh I, I'm, I'm sure you guys all know the joke but it's the Klingons don't look like regular Klingons. Why is that, Worf? We don't talk about it. And that, that to me, is the best way to handle retcons and nostalgia is, eh, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be a reason. 
no reason. And letting Worf feel uncomfortable with it, because if there's one thing that Michael Dorn does really well, it's sort of stirring his seat uncomfortably while people are talking about stuff personal. Like, uh. I, I kind of dig that. I like that they make it a joke, because what I love about it is them jumping back to one of the most iconic episodes of the original series and using that brand new Forrest Gump technology to actually literally put themselves into that episode. <laughs> Is that they picked an episode that was just fun, and therefore they could just have fun. Yeah. And the viewer could just have fun, and we could just have fun hanging out in the original Enterprise with the original velour uniforms, and we could go, wow, look at that, and look at that, without having to deal with like a super heavy duty episode of the original series. Right. Like, like you know, uh, what is the one that introduces the Romulans? Balance of Terror. Balance of Terror. Balance of Terror. That would have been a bad one to jump into or Errand of Mercy or anything that was like heavy duty with people being murdered left and right. (laughs) It's it's hard to play a a heavy duty episode like that on such a bright and colorful set. Exactly. But it's it's a station one. You know, it's K7 station. So it's a station show. So we're going to do the station episode. uh, (laughs) And it's a comedy. So we can have fun with it. And we can have aliens on it. It doesn't have to all be uh, Starfleet personnel. Uh, so it it worked perfectly, and I think for me it is better than the trouble with tribbles. So oh. I, you know, trouble with tribbles to me was always a bit. Uh, I I just don't like Kirk in it. You know, Kirk hmm. is a bit. I don't know. Um, he's always impatient, and then there's it's, that's supposed to be comical, but it doesn't quite work for me. So I, you know, that episode is like, yeah, it's good, but it's not one of my favorites. Unlike a lot of people, but trials and tribulations is. You know, makes it even more. It's clever, so you, you get to revisit that. But how are we going to insert characters hidden somewhere without changing the history? Um, I, I, you know, and and you know, uh, there's like Kirk's uh, explosive toupee up uh, up in the the triple uh, <laughs> grain silo, and yeah, I mean, it's it it is funny. Where I think Trouble with Tribbles was a little. Uh, was it always as funny? You know, I mean, I think you move forward into like Enterprise, and when they want to do a nostalgia show, they just contrive a way for there to be like an, an you know, like a Kirk era ship, and oh, we found these uniforms, let's put these on. You know, like and it starts to be a little bit too much. You're doing too much, and then you by the that time said, you, that was the best episode I, of I, Enterprise it, ever. Unfortunately, it was. <laughs> sure. But then I think you you move into like you, you're the, the reboot movies, and you're just sort of like, well, we're just going to do just nostalgia as the thing because we're always going to go back to that i love the idea that it's like bam one and done it feels good you love what it does but it doesn't this isn't the, this isn't the rest of the series from here on out you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah naked fan service done right i'd yeah. say but it do, it does a thing that d space nine does again and again and again and it's makes you want to go back and look at older episodes in in you know once you've there's been a revelation so in this case we're saying uh, if you look at trials, you go, well, I'll go back and look at the original show and kind of imagine that people are up in the silo or whatever. Um, but the whole series is a bit like this. When you realize that um, – you, you talked about revelations uh, earlier. When you realize that Bashir is genetically engineered, well, go back and try to see how that fits the character early on. What is he hiding? What is he – uh, what is he downplaying on purpose? You know, stuff like when you realize that Rom is a, g- a genius, go back 
and hmm. look at the early performances and see if it's in there and how it now changes the way the relation, you know, when he's being called an idiot, but you know he's not, it changes how you view those scenes. Yeah. And yes. there's a, a lot of that like, across Like Eddington, series. of course, as well, because, you know, Eddington is right. eventually going to be a turncoat and he's always sure. just a little bit, you're always just a little bit like, huh. Yeah, I wonder how, how far in advance they knew. One of the things I really love with Eddington at the end of that is after he's just been arrested and they take them away, Odo comes into the office and wants to remind everybody, it's, by the way, uh, Starfleet, I, if you could remind them that you brought they brought him onto the ship specifically because they didn't trust me, <laughs> if you could remind them of that the next time you speak with them, <laughs> I kind of love that. that. It's like, oh, yeah, that guy who ran off and joined the Maquis? That was your guy. Well, I mean, it's it is a weird that uh, that character is a weird sort of uh, way to stir up the Starfleet pot, pot because I mean, on one hand, they are political uh, radicals trying to fight for a cause that's not their cause specifically, but to help someone else. On the other hand, they're kind of just racists. You know, they're just sort of racists who hate Cardassians irrationally, um, but they. Uh, they sort of have uniformly agreed to form a sort of splinter Starfleet, I suppose. Yeah, and that's uh, that is actually a really, really amazing little tale to tell. I think they they mentioned does TNG do it first or does DS Nine do it first? Oh, I TNG don't remember. did the Maki first. Uh, they were a big part of. It. Remember, Ensign Rowe left to join uh, the Maquis yes. at the end of uh, right, TNG. Right, right, right. So they were created on there. What I love with the Maki in the context of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine is suddenly. The Cardassians are a much bigger deal on this show than on that one. Right, right. And when some of your main characters are people who have bombed and assassinated and attacked and snuck out with far fewer weapons than the group they're fighting with, say, Major Kira, uh, you suddenly have someone in the main crew who's going to be a lot more initially outwardly sympathetic to them because she can see herself in them, saying, I know what it's like to live under the Cardassians. And you can't trust them no matter what the, the treaty says. And I kind of love that because I have to admit, I kind of sympathize with the Maquis. Right. Unfortunately, they got a bit of the uh, Game of Thrones Dorn plot because by the time the Dominion War happened, they're like, nope, they're wiped out. We'll do one more episode, give Eddington his last shot, and like, no, no more Maquis. Never need to mention them again. Yeah, yeah. It's too, I mean, they got more than, than Dorn did. I will say that. Uh, Deep Space Nine, to its credit, knew how to use Alexander Siddig. Oh, that's true. That's true. Uh, I'll do one last more before high point, low point. I want to talk about, I think, probably my overall my favorite element that I think maybe it went on as much as it could have, which is Sloan and Section 31. So this is, uh, this is very murky territory for uh, storytelling in Starfleet because you have in Section 31... Uh, created basically like the skunk works de- plausible de- plausibly deniable CIA for the Federation who do the dirty work even though the rest of the Starfleet officers run around the galaxy telling other alien cultures how great they are and how noble they are where and they have other people that are doing all of the dirty tricks for them and I want to know that in in I know they're trying to do like more section 31 stuff now but it's kind of a DS9 thing, right? It's an, its own invention. I want to know if you guys think that it sort of works. Do you think the balance that they struck with Federation's ideals works well narratively, or is it just sort of like it had to fizzle out kind of predictably with the Sloan character? I For th- me, it's uh, Dark Knight Returns. Oh. Or a Watchmen. Because it works within that, that show. It works with the Bashir character. Um, 
you know, it's interesting there because we're at war because the show really does play with gray zones. But then everybody and their sister has to use it in their own show. Uh, and uh, it, it just becomes oppressive. So you've got Section 31 in uh, Enterprise and uh, Malcolm Reed turns out to be right. a secret agent. And then it's a big part of Discovery now and it may spin off into its own show and just feels like. Well, this super secret society thing, the super secret agency that we find out about in Deep Space Nine, well, if you, we go back a couple hundred years, it seems to be well known that, you know, shenanigans. So <laughs> I feel like I feel like it's too, too much in front. Uh, and mm. uh, there may be a fall, I guess, somewhere in between uh, the series before TNG. The, you know, they really go dark, I guess, or I mean, underground. Uh, maybe, but it just feels like oh, stop using that that particular agency as if it's a thing that you should be playing with. Hmm. Uh, you've learned the wrong lesson from from Deep Space Nine. I don't know. I feel like it's overused. Hmm. Uh, but, where Deep Space Nine just use it just right. Yeah, I think I think I think Deep Space Nine uses it just the right amount. They introduce it kind of late in the series, and they 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 toy with it a little bit, but they don't overdo it. Um, the episode that. Um, resolves it is sort of a hokey episode it's goofy it's, it's goofy, goofy where they go go into the mind of their enemy it's and not kind the of, first time it's ever happened on star trek but right yeah. and it's and it's it's kind of it's campy but it's also it still fits the narrative and it's not too far outside of the style of the show and it i think it, they chose just like a lot of their other uh where they have a singular actor sort of represent a big slice of it i think william sadler otherwise known as Death from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, um, is like... Also Haywood from the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, that's, that's true. He is a... And the villain from Die Hard 2. <laughs> yes. He he is so fucking good being this menacing <laughs> guy that's, uh, you know, he's friendly, he's, he's affable, and he's got these sort of like, you know better than that attitude, but there's always something sinister happening behind, behind him, and he just, he's perfect. He is locked into that character. It would be difficult, I think. I think they try to make Michelle Yeoh that sort of personality for Discovery and I don't think they fleshed it out all that well that's my opinion but William Sadler being if you're going to embody it in one actor they they picked it really well incredibly well yeah, yeah I, nobody nobody um, you know reached that level afterwards yeah I think it I think this, the point that Cisco you made earlier is very true which is that it it became a favorite narrative toy of writers that it was just a thing on one show it's like Wolverine that once you like wow this guy's great let's Put him everywhere. And you realize that putting him everywhere is not the thing that made it great. It was the little tastes of things. It was the mystery in between the appearances that made something interesting. And it's kind of like, again, like putting Q on multiple Star Trek shows that Picard is the guy he talks to. Mm -hmm. It's weird when he shows up on Deep Space Nine oh, for that is, episode. Is it weird when Worf shows up on Deep Space Nine and becomes a permanent cast member? No. Or are we just okay with it because everybody loves Worf? No, I, I mean, <laughs> it, it makes sense for Worf to be there because he's assigned. It's does easy it? to It's easy to write does a story it? where I need somebody... Yes, it, it works. <laughs> it does. I, and it makes sense that he would be thrown into a job that would involve war. That I need sure. a strategic operations guy. And it's like, well, this guy he just... fits better on that show. He fits better on D-Space Nine than he did in TNG, where mm. he's yeah, he's the guy that. kind of missing every time he shoots a gun. Yeah. I guess he I guess he is intentionally the token Klingon that Starfleet throws 
to Deep Space Nine when they feel like there's going to be some tension between this, you know. So I guess he has that, he bears that unfortunate burden. I, I love it. I love it. I also felt like it was, it was born out of the idea of, well, Michael Dorn still wants to wait three hours every morning to put on Klingon makeup. We might as well let him. Well, hey, you know, he's, he's good at it. <laughs> that one is one where it's, unlike the, the, the Defiant feels like the characters need a starship. So we're going to, so we're going to put a starship in the show. Worf is, it's definitely the opposite where it's the show needs some, you know, new life in it. Hmm. So we're going to sh- shoehorn a new character in. But, but they do, they do a couple of really interesting things. For one, it, it, they introduce the problem first and then he shows up as the solution to it. Right. Um, so I think that's really smart. And he doesn't show up until well into the episode that introduces him. Um, the other thing that they did is they, the decision to introduce him was fairly last minute. So they had written a bunch of other episodes for that se- season already. So he he shows up and he's obviously kind of central to that first couple of episodes. But then he's more of a background character and a and a and a, a you know part of the ensemble for the next like four or five or, or six episodes. So, so he's able to kind of integrate into the cast rather than being the shiny new toy that Ezri Dax kind of was when she was introduced. Right. Right. And I think it, it makes sense because Worf, after losing the Enterprise, which is kind of his center of his life, would want to quit. He's kind of, and again, when they introduce him on this show, he's in the same place that Cisco was at the beginning. Right. And right. we have spent several seasons building up the threat that he's there now to face. So it kind of makes sense that he would show up there, where, again, I mentioned with Q, why would Q show up just happen to be the messing with the person who happens to be the lead of these various shows <laughs> because it's the first season of deep space nine <laughs> yeah and they and need all the help they can get <laughs> exactly and it, it, it feels way more shoot in it feels yeah. like a much bigger coincidence for q to show up than than wharf wharf feels like he belongs and it feels seamless by the end of it and hmm. it would also make sort of sense that you know he's got an old crewmate there and it's an excuse for two people to occasionally mention the enterprise but never in a way that feels like you know overt force it down your throat fan service um they mentioned it when these two guys with shared experiences would remember something like mentioning that Worf delivered uh, Molly, you know, right, right. Miles O'Brien That's and true. Keiko's daughter, and mentioning that she's pregnant again and Worf going, oh, like <laughs> terrified at the notion of having to do childbirth again. I, I kind of love that. And it's just a little joke and it's a way for one crew member to tease another one. And saying, "Hey, look, I can scare a wharf. Check this out." <laughs> and <laughs> and and I mean, of course, it gave you the license to continually develop the Klingons, which you know they were Ronald Moore's Ron Moore's like big thing with Star Trek is I want to make the right. flush the Klingons out. So to have Ron Moore say, "Well, we we should keep going because we've invested a lot in flushing out the Klingons as a as a part of this universe." Okay, I guess. Correct. (laughs) I guess uh, that's it for now. We're going to be right back with High Point, Low Point. Siskoid's blog of geekery is. Doctor Who, Babylon 5, Animation, Comics, Toys, Godzilla, Star Trek, Cats, Crypto, Role-Playing Games, Battle Shovel, X-Files, Music, Podcasts, Board Games, Jack Kirby, Alien, Movie, Kung Fu, Dinosaur, and so much more. Siskoid's Blog of Geekery, 10 years of content, more than 7,500 posts, 
Still going strong at ciscoid.blogspot.com. And we're back. Radio versus the Martians. This panel is on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And we're going to do our high point, low point. That's where we go to the top of the mountain and the bottom of the barrel. I'm going to hand the low point over to Mike Gillis first. Mike, what is your low point for Deep Space Nine? Oh, I, I love Deep Space Nine. I think it's my favorite Star Trek series. And I think it has some of the best standalone episodes, whether it's Take Me Out to the Hollow Suites or it's, you know, Far Across the Star, Far Beyond the Stars. Mm-hmm. There's some amazing episodes of this show. And then there are some standalone episodes that are actually pretty bad. I mean, it's Prophet and Lace, where Quark is sort of surgically disguised as a female Ferengi. Sure. Or the board game episode from the first <laughs> season that said... Jumanji. But it's the Jumanji episode. I, I initially thought for a low point that I would do sort of a collection of, of those bad standalone episodes. But then I saw one of them, and it blew all the other ones out of the water. And that is the episode from season five, episode seven, Let He Who Is Without Sin. This no. Is, oh. <laughs> this episode made me, it just, it confused me. Parts of it made me angry. Um, I was... I was kind of floored by it because it is so fucking weird. It almost feels like a Voyager episode. Um <laughs> So Jadzia, Dax, and Worf go on vacation to Ryza, which is sort of the pleasure sex planet. And um, Worf decides to cross his arms and be a giant baby about how he doesn't like vacation and wants to ruin vacation for everybody. (laughs) He doesn't take his uniform off. He refuses to be. He's like a dick to everyone in this episode. He's just like, whoa, whoa, your ex works here? (laughs) And he's constantly being paranoid, accusing people of cheating on each other. He tries to, I mean, he doesn't even ask questions about why uh, Lita and Dr. Bashir are there, but he's just like, what? They're cheating on each other? And he's just, he's, he's like this ball of joyless judgment the entire time. <laughs> it's like Worf is this character that I've loved since Next Generation that, yeah, he's a bit repressed and tightly wound, but he's also this really kind and understanding person who is protective and decent and oftentimes surprisingly gentle. But in this episode, he's just fucking Mike Pence (laughs) because he just can't handle that people want to go to a planet where they can play volleyball and get a hand job. (laughs) And he falls in with this group of, I guess you could say, anti-fun terrorists (laughs) whose entire... Their entire thing is that if we're allowed to have replicants and have hand jobs and volleyball, that the Borg or the Dominion or the Romulans are going to kill us all because we need to live this Spartan existence that gets us back to traditional Federation values. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? So they do things where they stage a fake attack on like a diner and Worf is, is hanging around reading their pamphlet to Jadzia out loud while she just wants to go hang out at the beach she just wants to hang out with her boyfriend and all he wants to talk about is his anti-fun terrorist group (laughs) and he's like i don't know there's a lot of good stuff in here and 
Then he in had, no way is this as bad as the other two. <laughs> this is so so much worse because then he teams up with them to sabotage the environmental controls that basically terraform Ryza into a pleasure planet rather than apparently the swamp. So immediately it starts raining 24-7. And this is the point where I'm like, okay, bullshit. No one's going to leave this planet. What am I going to do on a sex planet if it's raining all the time and I'm, and I'm stuck indoors? This would have been a, you know, Horton hears a whom moment where you look down and you think they're going to be unhappy but they're actually just fucking and it just it drove me crazy because in the end Worf tells a story about why he's so repressed why doesn't he why doesn't he laugh or sing or cut loose the way all the other uh, Klingons do and the this soccer is a, story. Yeah, the soccer story. This is the part of the episode I actually like yeah. and wish was put somewhere else. The idea that Worf, you know, hanging out with human children, accidentally killed one as a child. And that's why he's so repressed. Put this in a different episode because right. it is so quick to forgive that he spends the entire episode being a piece of shit or when he falls in with the people's front of Prudia. It's just, I am just like, what the fuck is happening? How long have you been sitting on that one? That's really good. But this is the reason it's it's not as bad as the others. It's got that one scene. Yeah. It's got that one scene, but it's a one it's scene. It's got value. They let him off the hook way too easily. He's a fucking criminal now, and this is not how Worf would act. Worf was Worf fucks. I don't care what you say. And yeah, maybe he's a bit more traditional than a lot of other people, but Jesus Christ. It's like he is it's the people that he falls in with. It's like again, it's like Worf is not Mike Pence. No. And I'm just like, and how quick it was to just let it go that he basically sabotaged the climate of an entire planet because he doesn't like volleyball <laughs> and then just walks away from it. And I'm just saying, Vanessa Williams had all of the evidence to have him thrown into a penal colony at the end of this episode. <laughs> and it, seriously, that's the other bit, too, that the idea everyone on the fucking planet is just such a hippie that they don't beat the shit out of these old people that show up with fake phaser rifles. There's got to be at least one person, like an Andorian, who's like, oh, fuck this, I can't have skeetball. He <laughs> runs over and just clocks this old man. There's going to be somebody at that resort that isn't a hippie who's just going to go, you fucking asshole, you just ruined shuffleboard. And He's somebody. I mean, just it just drove me crazy. This idea of ineffectual hippies versus like prudish ne'er do wells, and I'm just like, what is happening? <laughs> like, we're in a war against the Dominion. We need this planet more than ever. Just, oh my God, you know, let he who is without sin. Low point. I it drove me up a fucking wall. Uh, uh, I can't follow He's that. The first stone. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so going, what is your low point for DS9? Uh, I'm I'm, just, I'm not gonna rant and rave, uh, but <laughs> no. uh, it won't be long. Uh, to me, at one a low point, I guess, not a whole episode, just a uh, I, a problem with casting, and it's when uh, Mugi Ishka is replaced. So oh. we lose Andrea Martin, who was so great in the first episode, uh, with uh, you know as as Raman Quark's mother. And then it, she's replaced by Cecily Adams. I don't think the makeup ever really fit her either. It just becomes she's just doing an impression of Andrea Martin. Hmm. It's terrible. And I think it really sinks every appearance by the character after that and therefore sinks a lot of those Ferengi-centric episodes for me. I hate the second Moogie. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's fair. <laughs> Warb, what about you? Low point? Keiko O'Brien. Oh! oh. We, we got all this no. way without... <laughs> um, and I hate that character. And I it's a combination of being really poorly written and being poorly acted that I, I don't want to put entirely on the actress's plate but because like, she's not given a lot to do. But she's just Chief O'Brien's nagging spouse. And it doesn't... Their relationship... For all we've talked about, the different relationships on the show and how they've grown and developed, the relationship between Miles and Keiko never goes anywhere beyond 1950s sitcom couple um, where mm. she's the stay-at-home, stay-at-home mom who, you know, occasionally gets a gig going off and doing something that seems very token. Um, we'll, we'll make her be the school teacher. We'll, we'll, we'll send her off to be a botanist. Maybe that's just how, just to, how, how Miles Edward O'Brien likes him. He likes him in the kitchen, maybe. I, I don't know. It just seems like a real waste of a character, hmm. and I'm just annoyed whenever she's on screen. Ugh. It always kind of drove me crazy because it feels like the two of them never had the really obvious conversation that should have happened before he took the job on Deep Space Nine. And it felt like they never got around to having it because they both kept kicking it down. The It's like if you're taking someone into something that is potentially a war zone, that is a former war zone or a job that requires you to go into really dangerous places, you really need to talk to your spouse, especially if you're somebody who you have a kid with. And it really does feel like they needed to sit down and have that conversation that, that especially Miles just didn't want to have. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, they channeled that obviously into making, as we talked about before, like that that latent romance between Bashir and uh, um, and O'Brien. Because what is it that they say near the end is, um, I love my wife, but I like you a bit more. <laughs> Which is, that's actually pretty cool. I mean, there's platonic relationships are a thing that you should be able to have and it not not necessarily need to fold neatly into the type of like mutual alpha macho relationships like you would normally see in an action show because i can say with you know to to back up the points that you're making here mike warbington is that uh whenever miles got into a fight with bashir i always wanted them to get back together i never (laughs) particularly (laughs) felt that way with keiko oh no Well, <laughs> home wrecker. <laughs> yeah, and they could also like find a middle ground and compromise and apologize to one another. And with Miles and Keiko, it was always just a matter of him being wrong and her being right. Mm. And like it seems to me like they were it was a, a kind of a background side character in Miles O'Brien that was paired with a, a um, an actress so they could have this storyline where they get married and um that was sort of an afterthought. Like they've never they never did any screen testing to see if the actors worked well together on screen if had any chemistry and i never feel like there's an attraction between them i never feel like there's uh, a solid foundation to the relationship like there is like instantly with jenna with um oh not jenna jennifer's is what his that are you talking about uh, cassidy yates uh, cassidy yates there's instantly a connection between cassidy Mm -hmm. yates and benjamin sisko Mm -hmm. and um there's a chemistry between Worf and Dax, but there's never any chemistry here in this I mean, there are, there are moments in TNG when Keiko is actually used really well. I think the dis- the disaster episode where she has is pregnant uses her to her strengths, right? But you don't see that an awful lot here. And I'm going to say my low point sort of piggybacks on what yours is a little differently. My low point are paw wraiths. So 
overall, DS9 did, I think, an okay job weaving that delicate balance between having a species of a- of aliens that have sincere religious beliefs and then also having a scientific explanation for why they exist. Um, and I like the tension between the faith and science bit. I think that is what is what this series does really well. Um, when they introduce the pa wraiths as like these non-corporeal beings that are alien that are opponents of the of the prophets i think they went just a little bit too far i mean you took something that was really 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 goofy and then you added it to something unlikable like keiko o'brien and then you have keiko (laughs) o'brien being possessed by a demon pa wraith trying to dispatch her husband two annoying elements somehow making them even more intolerable by adding them together (laughs) that that's like Having that 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 show, the assignment is was the episode is like having to watch an episode of Seinfeld where the whole cast is replaced by George Costanza's. Where you're just like, <laughs> I don't want to see any of this. I want this to be over. I mean, they're the Pares are poltergeists, right? So uh, it's like they they and they give their hosts like D and D wizard powers for some reason. Yeah, I don't know why. And red eyes. I just like it when Star Trek is more like Scooby-Doo when they're unmasking the the supernatural <laughs> phenomenon. And this one makes me think of like, oh, at the time, X-Files is big, so ooh, we could have demonic possession. It's just the one one of the element that does not seem to work with the reality of the shows, even if you assume the wormhole aliens that looks so tacked in as to add some more danger because they need to place characters and, you know, in for the seventh season, place these chess pieces on the board. And I just think it goes on too long and is too ridiculous. And I it can't be forgiven, unfortunately. Wow. And that's my low point. So we've all done our low points. Let's drag ourselves out of the gutter. Let's go to high point. Siskoid, what is your high point for the series DS9? Well, here I could have chosen any number of episodes, of course, but uh, I want to pick a moment because uh, there, there are a lot of moments in Deep Space Nine that make me well up and choke up and uh, that I'm sort of afraid to talk about because I won't be able to fi- finish sen- sentences. Hmm. Um, but uh, this one is a uh, a great moment to, to underline because it shows how much the show, how malleable the show is, how daring the show is uh, compared to other Star Trek shows uh, of its era or before. And it's the moment when Cisco leaves D Space Nine uh, at the end of a season where it's going to be taken over by Cardassians and the Dominion. Uh, so it it preludes the like uh, coming back to a season, and we've got the Federation on the run. We've got six whole episodes with the station in enemy hands. Uh, so it's it you know it's daring to do that. Uh, on a show where we're we're used to, uh, you know, the, the crew being together, they're all split up, and this is a, a departure from Star Trek formula. Uh, and the the actual moment is a very touching one, where uh, Cisco gives a speech to the assembled people at the airlock um, that have to stay, that have to stay there. The Bajorans have to stay there. The, the you know the Ferengi have to stay there. Uh, and he's speaking to those people, and he has the, the, this speech about. Uh, coming back to this place where he belongs, hmm. and that's a great. Mo- it, I mean, it's great as as far as structure goes, but it's a great moment of Cisco accepting in that whole episode. That, that's the one where uh, Rom and Lita get married yeah. as well. So it's it's a moment where he accepts that he is the emissary, that his home is Bajor, his home is Deep Space Nine. Uh, after 
so many seasons of the Starfleet characters kind of resisting it, kind of, you know, finding that they're this ugly Cardassian station that's causing problems and that this community, this disparate community is difficult to to keep together and to balance. Uh, And this is a moment where he says, I'm coming back. This is my home. This is where I end my days. So great, great moment. High point. Nice. I'll just go next. Mine is Wayun, uh, yes. character that we haven't really talked about too much. And those, there's, it's Jeffrey Combs really is the is that as that root here. So there is no shortage of like middling or terrible roles that he has taken throughout his career, whether it be in <laughs> cult movies or on TV shows, where he hasn't just by sheer charisma made something bad great or something good amazing by his performance. Um, he's infamous for horror movies, especially, but in DS9, he plays Wayun, this like sort of is he's a Vorta. He's a servant to the founders. He's a servant to the bad guys. Um, he's, uh, he worships the changelings as a God. So all of his motivations are through the funnel of he's a yes man who will always, no matter what, will always defer to a founder. Um, he's this smarmy, obsequious, like, um, toad of a creature, like he really is weak. He's a he's a weak creature, um, but he's as loathsome as sort of he is intriguing in the way that position of power that he holds. But a, but the apparent powerlessness he has of the people above him, and I think there's there's a lot of the character runs through a lot of the the Dominion arc. Um, we find out that there's not one Wayun, but there. Every time a Wayun dies, they make a new Wayun. So he's effectively an immortal character, <laughs> which ha- has its own fun part to it because they end up dying. But in the episode "Treachery, Faith, and the Great Ro- River," um, Odo is doing something, and he finds out that there's a Wayun, but it's not the Wayun. It's a Wayun that was. It's Wayun Six. It's a version that has gone off the rails. Who, when he was reborn, he came to the conclusion that if he wanted to serve the founders well, he would try to stop the war because the only thing he could see in his sort of genetically engineered produced mind was we're going to lose this war and that means the founders are going to die, essentially. So the only way he can serve the founders right is by betraying them. Um, I love how even when he switches sides as a character, his devious plotting and loyalty is still apparent. Like they don't, he doesn't just become like, I want to be a, 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 uh, I, li- I like you, Federation, because of your morals. I want to be a freedom fighter with you. He's, like, still doing the thing that he's programmed to do, and it's utterly sincere from his performance. Um, I mean, DS9 has no shortage of amazing supporting characters, a lot that we've talked about here. But just him being the entire, Wei-Yun being the entire face and demeanor to the Dominion as a whole personifies its, like, calculating, ca- the calculating ominous bureaucratic threat that the uh, the Dominion poses to the whole Alpha Quadrant, embodied in one character, Wayun. That's my high point. Oh, I love Wayun. Yeah, Wayun's great. Um, uh, Warb, how about you? Um, so, Deep Space Nine is probably my favorite show ever, and so I'm kind of guilty of um, whatever I've seen most recently is my favorite part of Deep Space Nine. So that's kind of a, a disclaimer here. But the the thing I've seen most recently is, as I've been catching up on rewatching the show, I watched the finale last night. Oh, and, nice. And the eight episodes leading up to it the last two nights. And so that's the most recent thing in my memory. So that's my high point is um, 
the essentially 10-episode arc that concludes the series and how deftly they manage to weave in story elements from throughout the entire run of the series. There's an episode dedicated to kind of wrapping up the Klingon arc over the course of the series right. and Martok, who's another one of those great recurring characters, and Worf, of course, um, and wrapping up a character arc among the Klingons that's been ongoing since TNG with Gowron and his story. Right. And kind of his true colors coming coming to light in in the, in the span of a, a single episode. And then there's an episode with um Bashir and O'Brien where we've talked we talked about it earlier where they go inside the mine of sections 31, but that's in that final arc and it kind of wraps up both their storyline together and how far they're willing to go for one another. Um, and it also it, it ties into the the section section thirty one and how that intersects with Odo's story and with the changelings, the founders. Um, all these elements are interwoven and lead to a climax that is there where they're ultimately victorious, and yet it's a utter utter hollow victory because they see the destruction that's been been wrecked on upon um, the the Cardassian homeworld. And how they don't? Oh, they, yeah. they they pour they they show up and they the plan failure to, to toast over the dead bodies of Cardassians. Yeah, they yep. pour out their glasses of blood wine because it's yep. not the victory that they had hoped for. It's it's a victory of where they they understand that the Cardassians were the victims in this too. Um, just that moment in particular, but also that just the way the entire s- series wraps up all those characters and how they don't move forward as though they could continue making the show. There's a definitive end to a lot of the characters. The characters go off in different directions once the show has ended, and and you you, you get the sense that there's some finality to the ending. Their, char- their stories may continue, but it's but their, their individual stories may continue, but the story of this crew has ended. And I think that's it's probably, in my opinion, one of the best, if not the best, series finales of, hmm. of any Star Trek, for sure, but any series in general they hit they hit the landing so well it's so impressive hmm. and uh, lastly that's mike gillis what about you high point for ds9 um if there's one thing that i've seen star trek get criticized for over the years it's that you know the homogenous idea of the alien species as the metaphor that one actor has to bear the weight one character has to bear the weight of an entire species, that Spock has to be every Vulcan, that Worf had to be every Klingon. And what I love that this show did was that it actually solved that problem in a way that actually applies to actors and demographics and in real life, which is representation. Varied, wonderful representation that you don't put that all on one character, that there are multiple Ferengi characters. There are multiple Cardassian characters that um, I think this is just something that Deep Space Nine does remarkably well. Like Quark is sort of the Ferengi that you would expect to be the only Ferengi character on a show that he has to bear that way. But then you have Rom, who, again, is not good at being a typical Ferengi and neither is Nog. You have, you know, Gul Dukat on almost any other show. He would have been the only Cardassian character. You know, he's smug, you know, he cares about, you know, he's sort of a dictator. But then you have Damar and you have Garrick. Um, what I love about this, too, you get the same thing with the, the Bajorans. Bajorans are not all just one thing. You get Kira, you get Kai Wynn, you get Vedic Baral, you get all of these characters that create the idea that there's a spectrum of these people, that some of them are duplicitous, some of them are kind, some of them are brave, some of them are weak. Um, 
you get Martok, you get googly-eyed uh, Chancellor Gowron, you get Worf. <laughs> and, and, and through this, not everyone has to bear the weight of an entire alien species anymore. These characters are allowed to be nuanced in a way that we've never seen in Star Trek before because one character isn't every member of that species with the occasional guest star. And I love that. I, I love the variety of it. It allows them to go beyond that initial stereotype, that initial metaphor, and become real in a way that I don't think we'd ever seen on Star Trek, that the Cardassian people are not just the Nazi metaphor anymore. They're not just uh, a commentary on totalitarian governments. They're not just a metaphor on, you know, military occupation. There's so much more. And it becomes complicated and it allows you to have complicated feelings about it because you get to see it pulled in all these different directions that if you threw that all in one character would feel really schizophrenic. And it's also interesting that if you look at the main cast of this show out of like a dozen or so characters that appear regularly on Deep Space Nine, only four are human that's something we've never seen in Star Trek before. You yeah. have you have Benjamin and Jake Sisko, you have Miles O'Brien, and you have Julian Bashir. Everyone else is an alien. And on Trek shows, the, the general idea is like on the original Star Trek, you had a bunch of humans plus Spock. On TNG, you had Worf and Counselor Troy were the only non-humans, maybe Mott the Barber and Guinan occasionally. Yeah. But D- for the data, I guess, and data, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But a, yeah. and even then, data was built by humans to be an approximation of a human, mm-hmm. uh, trying but, to be human. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, there's this element that sort of takes you outside of yourself. It does what the Ensign Row episodes did of of the original Next Generation episodes. Is it gave you an outside perspective on stuff that you're used to being on the inside of in Star Trek, and through that rep- representation gave you a more nuanced idea of what Starfleet was, what this future is, this utopian ideal is, that isn't always as great as you want it to be, even though it's trying. And I think that nuance, um, the idea of everything becoming more organic, more human, more complicated, more messy, is something that you get with that representation. And that's why that's my high point. Nice. I love it. Uh, wow, this has been... I, there is so much more we could talk about. We just said over the break, we forgot to talk about Odo, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> but we're going to have to leave it there. Um, Siskoid, I want to thank you so very much for joining us uh, for this discussion. If any of our fans want to know what you're doing, how do they find out about your stuff? Uh, they can Google the word Siskoid because that's it. I'm the, I'm the only one. It'll lead you to the Siskoid's blog of geekery, which I still write for people that read, uh, you know, once a day. And uh, the Fired Water Podcast Network is where I, um, you know, Tuesdays are Canada Day, as we call them. I usually have an episode out of a myriad shows, I guess. Give me that Star Trek being the most relevant here. But there's stuff on comic books and, um, you know, pretty uh, uh, off-color Kind of, kind of shows like Oh Hot War Not, where a group of girls uh, talk about characters in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Uh, in, in dating, I'll, I'll put quotation marks around the word dating, in dating terms. Um, but uh, it's a lot about, you know, who has a big package or what, whatever. So, awesome. Discussions about bulge. Yeah. Nice. Um, it's Puck from yeah. Alpha Flight, isn't it? <laughs> we're not there yet. We're still in. Episode 50 is coming up, and uh, we're still in the eight. H's 
Wow. H's and I's around, or, yeah, still H's. So um, mid, no, no, it's we're ending issue five. Issue five. It's going very slow. It's like four characters per episode. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Sounds. Uh, like- but uh, yeah, so, so shows like that. So you can find that at fireandwaterpodcast dot uh, com. Is it? Yeah, fireandwaterpodcast dot com. Dot com. Yeah, I, I I forget that. You know, I, I say it all the time, and now I'm blanking on it. But you know, you know what it is. <laughs> thank you so. You know what? Thank you so much for being with us, and now, and we want you to come back again soon. Okay. All right, and uh, Mike Warbington, uh, thank you, of course, for making the trip another another inaugural panel. Um, what what are you up to? I work a lot with Camp Quest Northwest. Oh yes. So if you are interested in that. The summer camp for campers ages 8 to 17, and we're always looking for volunteers. So if you're interested in that at, at all, visit uh, campquestnorthwest.org. You're doing the Lord's work, Mike. You're doing the Lord's <laughs> work. And again, thank you, Mr. Gillis, hey. as always, for being here. We're happy to see you. Hey, thank you for making me rewatch this great show. <laughs> and also a special thanks to our episode sponsors, as now we have 10 of them. They are Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Gus Lindgren, Mike Siebert, Jem Newman, and Sinjin. And always, if you want to become an episode sponsor, check us out on patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or radio versus the Martians.com. Thanks, everybody. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Central Command has gone on military alert in response to the kidnapping of Galdakat. I'm not surprised. The security chief of yours, the shapeshifter. Odo. Odo. Are you sure you wouldn't be better off with a Starfleet officer heading your security team? Admiral, I have complete faith in Odo's ability to do his job. If you say so, Commander. I do. And as for Galdakat, I assure you we are taking all possible steps to locate him. Good. Keep me informed of your progress. I will. But Admiral... There is a bigger issue here than rescuing Ducat. And what is that? The Maquis. The Maquis are a bunch of irresponsible hotheads. These hotheads are responsible for the bombing of the Baknor. I'm aware of that, Commander. We never should have allowed those colonists to remain on the Cardassian side of the demilitarized zone. Well, they're there, Admiral, and they're not leaving. What about Commander Hudson? He's lived with these people. What's his analysis of the situation? I'll have to ask him. You do that. 
And Commander, I want you to find the Maquis. Talk to them. Remind them that they're citizens of the Federation. That it is imperative that we preserve the treaty with the Cardassians. A treaty the Cardassians may not be honoring. Are you questioning Federation policy, Commander? All I know is that the situation in the demilitarized zone is deteriorating rapidly. Personally, I think you're overstating the problem. Establish a dialogue with the Maquis. They're still Federation citizens. I'm sure they'll listen to reason. Good luck, Commander. Establish a dialogue? What the hell does she think I've been trying to do? Commander. Just because a group of people belong to the Federation, it does not mean that they are saints. Excuse me. Do you know what the trouble is? No. The trouble is Earth. Really? On Earth, there is no poverty, no crime, no war. You look out the window of Starfleet headquarters and you see paradise. Well, it's easy to be a saint in paradise. But the Marquis do not live in paradise. Out there, in the demilitarized zone, all the problems haven't been solved yet. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Angry, scared, determined people who are going to do whatever it takes to survive. Whether it meets with the Federation approval or not. Makes sense to me. I'm glad someone understands. Legate Parn's ship just put in at Docking Bay 5. Maybe you'd like to give the same speech to him. I just might do that.